song dedicated to bad guy 23 bad guy we know about you don't buy shoes unless they popular that's right and this message was brought to you by lou father and richard brody's comb over not richard brody himself but richard brody's comb over and lou father they brought you that message and that song not my choice but uh ten dollars was donated to the free roll for this, so I, I had to do it. <laughs> People in the chat room couldn't believe it. Someone in the chat said, how do you go from t- tie a yellow ribbon around the oak tree to this? That's some range you have there, they said. But it's actually not my range. But if it was, it'd be pretty impressive. Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio, the Druff and Friends show today, Tuesday, 
July 2nd, 2013. Starting a little bit late, but uh, this is the week leading up to the main event of the World Series of Poker. I will be playing the main event for the ninth year in a row. I've played every year since 2005. Had one good year in it, 2010, when I finished 88th place. Other years I haven't cashed, though I came close both last year and the year before. We will see what happens, and we have several members of Poker Fraud Alert that are going to be playing. And we'll talk about the World Series of Poker main event later in the show. Uh, We may or may not have a co-host tonight. China Maniac is not in his usual Boston area location. He's actually in Las Vegas right now. And uh, I'm not sure exactly where he is, and I'm not sure if the internet's good where he is. But if he shows up, then we will have him on as a co-host. Otherwise, it'll just be me. So this is uh, Poker Fraud Alert Radio, the Druff and Friends show. As I said before, we do have a free roll tonight. A free roll, which is at 7.40. 7.40 Pacific Time, 18 minutes from now. Make sure to get on there as fast as you can, because if you don't, you will not get into this free roll. And this is a big one. This is $100. $100 free roll, actually $100 and I think 62 cents. $100 and something cents. You can you can find it there, but it, it's around $100. And that's on the No Fraud Online Poker Room. It's a completely free poker room. You can get a free account. It doesn't even require play chips to play the free roll. The only thing it does require, as always, is you have to have a registered account on the Poker Fraud Alert forum dated January 1st or before. If you do not have a registered account on the Poker Fraud Alert forum dated January 1st, 2013 or before, you will not qualify for the free money unless I have given you an exception. The way you get an exception, and once you get it, it's good for life, you either email me, dandruff at pokerfraudalert.com, dandruff at pokerfraudalert.com, or PM me, Dan Space Druff, on the forum, and tell me how long you've been listening, tell me what you like about the show, tell me what you don't like, uh, tell me things you remember from this or other shows have been part of, and uh, just convince me you've been around and you're not just here for the free roll. You can even talk about the forum, but just convince me you've been around, and I'll give you an exception. But you have to do it before you win. If you win and then send me the message after that, it will not count. You will have to wait till the next week. So the $100 free roll this week is courtesy of three different people on this forum. Poker Fraud Alert has given away more money in our free rolls than any poker podcast in the world over the past year. So, thanks to our users and their generosity. This all comes from the users, not from me. This week, $77 of the 100 came from Anonymous, who shared some of the wealth since he had 3% of me in Event 37, where I finished 5th. Father. $10 for that uh, lovely song we played at the beginning, dedicated to Bad Guy, and Ricky, who donated $13.62. So that's where we get our $100.62 free roll. First place is an even 50 bucks. Usually the whole pool is 50 bucks. This week, first place is 50 bucks. Second place will get half of that, 25 bucks. Third place, $15.62. Fourth and fifth each get $5. So that's the prize breakdown, and you have to qualify in the way I told you. But if you have an account on the forum dated January 1st, then you're good. You've already qualified no matter what. So let me give you the phone numbers if you want to call into the show. 
775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. Make sure to show your caller ID. And if you want to call a 702 area number, you can call our Mount Charleston phone. That's an old 70s telephone I have sitting on the top of the mountain. Mount Charleston is a mountain that hangs over Las Vegas, about 45 minutes away from Vegas. Actually snows there in the winter. You can ski on it. Uh, you can call it any time of the year and reach me, 702 702- 430-1808-702-430-1808. It forwards to wherever I am. But again, you have to show your caller ID or you will not get through. So those are our two phone numbers. If you don't feel like calling, if you're the shy type when it comes to the phone, you can always go into the chat room and talk to me there. But I'll be honest, I can't read the chat room very much when I'm doing the show if I'm by myself. If I have a co-host, then when the co-host starts talking, I tune him out and I read the chat room. No, that's not really true. But uh, I, when he talks, at least I can do two things at once. I can listen to him and read the chat room. When I'm doing the show all by myself and doing everything, I don't have time to read the chat very much. But every so often, I will take a glance there. So if you hear a weird, awkward pause, that's probably what I'm doing. And if I miss anything you say in the chat room, I apologize, but there's only so much one human being can do. So I'm going to give you the agenda for tonight's show. And... Um, we will take it from there, and you never know what happens on this show. Sometimes the best stuff occurs that is not scheduled. So don't always count on the agenda to define the show. All right, so Chino Reem played the one-drop tournament. Sorry, he didn't play. He was supposed to play, allegedly, the big one-drop tournament. Now, this year it was $111,000 buy-in. Last year it was a million dollar buy-in, but this year they dropped it. Because truthfully, I mean, who can really come up with... One million dollars. For a single tournament, that's nuts. And the way people came up with it for the most part, aside from a few like rich businessmen that you've never heard of, the way most of the poker pros came up with it was uh, the organizer of the one-drop charity tournament, Guy La Liberté, the owner of Cirque du Soleil, bought these people in. So uh, he staked most of the field last year, and probably this year as well, even though the buy-in is about 10% of what it was last year. Actually, about 11% of what it was last year. Uh, 111K was the buy-in. Allegedly, this has not been verified, so I don't want to say this happened for sure, but I'm hearing a lot of strong rumors that it happened. So if I'm wrong about this, I apologize, and I'm going to say in advance, I don't know for a fact that this is true. This This is just a rumor, but it also might be a true rumor. It's been going around, and I... I have to talk about this on this show, even without it being verified. Chino Reem is accused of, by certain parties of taking the $111,000 for the one-drop tournament from Guy La Liberté, who staked him, and ran off and did not play. Now, it is verified he did not play. It is verified there was no Chino Reem in this tournament. It is not verified if he was actually given one hundred ten or one hundred eleven k to play in the tournament and ran off. But if he did... I mean, uh, that would be the biggest scumbag move we've seen in a long time. Uh, Someone's joking in the chat, Sean Deeb should be phoning in right away. He's referring to a false accusation that was levied at Sean Deeb by me, kind of, on the show, where a user gave me a tip that he was the one uh, cheating at uh, Open Face Chinese against Barry Greenstein. And then it got back to him, and he called in and was really angry at me. And it turned out it was not Sean Deeb doing it. It was somebody else. I'm not even going to name that other person because I don't want to get myself into hot water. But it wasn't Sean Deeb. And I apologize again to Sean Deeb for that. Uh, 
But uh, maybe we'll get a call from Chino, and he'll say, what the fuck, why are you accusing me of this? But I'm not the only one accusing him of this. This has been publicly outed in several places, and Chino hasn't denied it yet, to my knowledge. So supposedly Chino, who of course has had a lot of problems in the past, uh, he was a November Niner at one of the main events, and won like a million bucks there, and he won 1.1 million very recently in a WBT tournament at the Bellagio. Uh, he has a lot of strong caches. He's actually a good tournament player, but he is the biggest degenerate you'll ever know. And when he runs out of money. He's not very ethical about the way he gets money to keep himself in action. Where he will take loans, he'll cite his various recent successes to get those loans. Say, hey, I just won 1.1 million, of course I'm good for it. Hey, I just won a million bucks, of course I'm good for it. You know, you just saw me at the final table of the main event, of course I'm good for it. I mean, he pulled it on me. He pulled it on me on PokerStars right after he uh, finished ninth in the main event. Said, hey, Druff, give me 8,000 here. You know I'm good for it. You know, I, I just hit that. So I was a fool and gave him $8,000, but somehow I got paid. Not quite on the terms that he promised me, but I got paid the full amount he borrowed. So I was very fortunate. People couldn't believe that I got paid. So I I ran very well Chino-wise. But uh, anyway, by now Chino has a very, very bad reputation and I'm shocked that this even could have occurred. I'm not shocked that it could have happened once Chino had the money. I'm shocked that it was allowed to occur in the way it did. I'll talk about that as our first story. But let me give you the rundown on the rest of the show. Two lock poker pros are dumping their money at 33 cents on a dollar. Now, when I say dumping it, I don't mean they're doing chip dumping. I mean that they are selling their chips on 2 plus 2 for 33 cents on a the dollar. These are lock poker pros. These aren't just you know regular players. Regular players have been selling at that rate for quite some time, but here they are selling, lock poker pros are selling their lock money for 33 cents on the dollar. I think that pretty much tells you uh, how the site is doing, and I'll get into that whole situation. Just got an interesting tweet also, I'll talk about that, uh, about one of our other topics we're going to get to. See if I can get this guy on the show. Not the lock poker pro, but... uh, Viffer, David Pete, remember him? The guy with the multicolored hair, kind of a big guy. Played very uh, wildly on high-stakes poker. People loved watching him, a big personality of poker. Kind of a fun guy to watch playing No Limit Hold'em. He claims he's done playing poker. There's nothing left in the game for him. It's, it's not fun for him anymore. Is that true? Should we believe him? And if it is true, why would he be leaving poker? I will tell you about that. I'll give my opinion on whether he will come back, why he's leaving, and I'll tell you a personal Viffer story from back in the day. Ultimate Poker. Two stories about them. I guess a good one and a bad one. The good story is that they're coming to New Jersey. There is now an agreement that Ultimate Poker will uh, exist in New Jersey, no longer just Nevada. Uh, At the moment, there are no plans to merge the player pools. It'll almost be be like two different sites, but it'll both be be Ultimate Poker, and the ultimate plan for Ultimate Poker is to merge it to where they're the same player pool. It just uh, isn't happening right now. But it is coming to New Jersey. That's the good story about them. The bad story is that they have a big flaw in their software that allows really bad and blatant angle shooting, and I was a victim of that. 
I will tell you what happened, and it still can happen until it gets fixed, and it's not easy for them to fix the software, which is another problem. Not even their fault, that part of it. Attack Poker. Have you ever heard of Attack Poker? Don't feel bad, I haven't either. But they've signed Chad Ellie, convicted payment processor Chad Ellie, who just got out of prison. They signed him as a pro and presumably are sponsoring him for the main event of the World Series. You may have Chad Ellie at your table. I may have Chad Ellie at my table at the main event of the World Series. Uh, Attack Poker is actually a free poker site. It's not even a subscription site. It's completely free. I don't even understand how the thing makes money. But uh, somehow they're sponsoring Chad Ellie. I'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, Chad Ellie, I tried to get him to do an interview with me, a follow-up interview. We had him on this show in November talking all about the world of online payment processing. Very interesting guest. But uh, he didn't get back to me in time for the show. So he said yes, they'd come on, but then he didn't agree to come on tonight. So we're probably not having him. It'll probably be next week or some other week. The On Game Network, which has existed for quite some time, uh, in 2012 was owned by B-Win Party, or not owned, but they were backed by B-Win Party. It was kind of like they're, uh, I guess they were owned, but they were operating separately as a separate entity when were just backed by B-Win Party. The story has come out that at the time that they uh, were sold by B-Win Party to a company called Amaya, that they only had 31% of player cash on deposit. Does that sound familiar? Well, it should. That's what happened to Full Tilt, except Full Tilt had much, much less than 31%. They had like 2% on deposit. And uh, UB had even less. So On Game wasn't quite in that bad a shape, but they still only had 31% of player cash on deposit. How the hell does this keep happening? Why does this keep happening? This needs to stop happening. Now, it isn't as bad as it appears, for reasons I'll explain when I get into the story, but it is still pretty bad, and we'll talk about that. And it's uh, not so much a, a warning about on-game, which is safe to play on now, but uh, more of a warning about every poker site out there that uh, they probably don't have your money. Now, this is a thing I just got a tweet about. And uh, maybe we can get this guy on the show. There's an individual named Jesse Jet, Not Chip Jet, not Karina Jet, but Jesse Jet, Not related to them either. He lives in St. Louis. He was accused on 2 plus 2, and I should say accused because this story is not verified. I'm not even sure what I believe. But he was accused on 2 plus 2 of agreeing to a chop at the Rio Deep Stack event on June 16th and 17th, and then keeping the first place money and running off. Because I, I guess that the Rio Deep Stacks, they cannot do a chop. It's up to the players to settle amongst themselves. So the story was that uh, he took the full money for first place and ran off. I don't know if it's true. I tweeted at him asking if it's true. He just tweeted at me a few minutes ago. False. That's all he said. So uh, I'm going to ask him if he'd like to come on the show. As always, I'm going to produce this show during the show. That's a trademark of Poker Fraud Alert Radio, the Druff and Friends show. Let's see. I am doing radio right now. Would you like to come on? And defend yourself. I'm actually texting this on my phone to Twitter. I don't know why. I have a computer right in front of me. And defend yourself. Be happy I can uh, text quickly. Otherwise, you guys will be waiting forever while I'm doing this. 
So we'll see if Jesse Jett wants to come on. I'm, I'm not going to accuse him of anything. I mean, I don't know if he's guilty of this or not. I know that he was the listed winner on the day this is alleged to have happened, but uh, there's a lot of different stories of whether this really even occurred. But there seems to be enough consensus that it did occur that I think it's something we do have to address, even if poor Jesse Jett is innocent. Uh, Poker Stars, remember they were trying to acquire the Atlantic Club in Atlantic City to presumably enter the online poker market that is legalized in New Jersey? Well, that's dead in the water. It's not going to happen. And you know what? Even though Atlantic Club kind of acted shady in the whole thing, Poker Stars really only has themselves to blame for this failing. They really screwed this one up. Poker Stars, who's usually very, very good at this sort of thing, they're very good at business. They're very good at uh, business-type decisions. They're very good at uh, doing all the right things to keep themselves the most profitable. But they really screwed this one up big time, and no one can understand how they dropped the ball so badly on this. And it ended up costing themselves $11 bucks plus the opportunity to own the Atlantic Club Casino for a very small sum of money. So we will talk about that. Does anybody remember when genocide Jennifer Lee claimed that someone broke into her safe at the Rio? Because all the rooms in the Rio have an in-room safe. She claimed someone broke into her safe and stole her money. And I was actually affected enough by this to where I was afraid to put money in the safe there. Especially during the World Series. Well, it turned out that uh, this didn't really happen. Genocide did not make it up, but she believed it happened at the time, and then it turned out later that it was a snake-in-the-grass friend she had. Not the snake-in-the-grass, but a snake-in-the-grass friend she had that was stealing from her. Uh, This was not somebody in poker, so there's no reason to give their name. It's just uh, a random person she knows from uh, outside of poker who stole from her. But that's not why I'm talking about this today. It's an old story. The new story is that poker pro Eric Willing to Die Sonstegard claims that Rio employees stole $3,000 and an iPad from his room. Not from his safe, but from his room. I believe him, too. We're going to talk about that a little bit. Uh, the main event, of course, is coming up. I will uh, not only discuss the main event and my past years in the main event and, um, you know, what I expect to the main event, but also give some tips for anybody playing. I know we have a few people on, on Poker Fraud Alert that will be playing, including my frequent co-host here, China Maniac. And speaking of the main event, the guy who won it last year, Greg Merson, he does not feel like he is part of the Poker Cool crowd, which is kind of surprising. Uh, poker actually has a lot of clicks. It's like high school in a lot of ways. And um, Greg Merson wanted to play at the Aria. I guess they're running private games over there in the Aria poker room. And apparently he got shut out and they won't tell him, you know, where the waiting list is, who's on the waiting list. It's just this weird private game they're running over here and they just will not let him in. I don't know if it's so much because they don't want him in the game uh, because of his skill, but maybe just because um, they don't know him and they want to play amongst each other. Or maybe it's uh, you know eight people and one fish, or seven people and two fish, and they don't want to let any outsiders in. I don't know why, but he is complaining on Twitter about these private games and says this has to stop. So, interesting story from the main event champ. You'd expect that from someone who's like a nobody in poker, not a main event champion of last year. So, uh, he was openly tweeting about this. I'll talk a little bit about that and tell you what I have observed 
about these private games and how I feel about them. And of course, you can call in. Uh, please don't keep calling if I don't answer. Just wait until uh, I give the phone number out again or say I'm taking calls because sometimes I'm in the middle of a topic and I don't want to stop in the middle to take a call about probably a different topic. So I try to keep the show uh, uh, on a continuous topic until I'm done with that topic and then move on to the next one. And then I try to take calls in between. Sometimes I'll break the topic up and take a call if it's uh, some a call I really feel I, I want or need to take. But uh, if I don't answer, please don't be insulted. So that's the agenda tonight. If China Maniac shows up, then we'll have a co-host. Otherwise, we will not. Um, someone telling me to check my Twitter DMs. All right. I know. Why not? Oh. Um... I think we may get a co-host after all, not China Maniac. So, it's a co-host we actually haven't had before, but I'm happy to have him. And uh, let's go to the first topic here in the meantime. Actually, I'll quickly check the chat room here. So I was kind of ignoring it as I was going on my agenda. Uh, I think that's about... Uh, the only thing I'm going to comment on right now from the chat room. I'll check it every so often. Um, anyway, Chino Reem, as I said earlier, allegedly took $111,000 from Guy La Liberté, the organizer of the One Drop event, who stakes a whole lot of people in the event. And, you know, I, I think what's going on here is Guy, you know, he loves poker. This guy has so much money, he's a billionaire. And he has this one-drop charity that provides clean drinking water to third-world countries. Sounds like a good charity. I, I haven't really researched it. I, I don't know that much about the charity, but I know generally what it does. And uh, rather than just give the money directly to one-drop, which is probably what he would normally do, he came up with the idea for this giant buy-in tournament. Last year it was a million dollars. This year it's $111,000. And... Uh, I think what he's doing here is he's staking most of the people, at least most of the poker players. You know, there's businessmen, he knows, that are buying in for the full amount on their own. Very rich people, maybe not as rich as him, but very rich people that 111 k or even a million dollars is not that much money to them. But uh, the poker pros, you're going to be hard-pressed, especially in the post-online age, that... Uh, can just drop a million or even a hundred k and not blink on a single tournament. It's just poker player, poker players are not that rich unless they're rich from something else, like uh, Dan Shack, who's a hedge fund manager. Uh, he has a lot of money, but not from poker. Nobody's won enough in poker to where they're just so filthy rich that they can just drop a million or even a hundred k and just uh, not blink. Just nobody has that much money in poker, no matter how successful they've been. And that's a fact. So uh, the, you always have your uh, degenerate gamblers that are willing to put up something like 100000 But I, last year I couldn't picture anyone putting up a million. I mean, that's just crazy. Like, let's say you even have a, a net worth of uh, $10 million, which uh, very, very few poker players are currently sitting on a $10 million net worth from playing poker. There's probably a few, but not many. It's very, very hard to do that. So, let's say you have someone 
who has a 10 million net worth all from poker. Still, uh, could you imagine them putting a million bucks on one tournament? They'd have to be a real degenerate to do that. And even 100,000 for most people is just too much. So I think that uh, Gee is staking people where he's buying in the majority of the field, which seems kind of ridiculous. You know, why would you ever stake the majority of the field? How, how will you ever come out ahead in that way? Well, he doesn't want to come out ahead. He wants a charity to come out ahead. So he must give them a small percentage of themselves to play for, maybe 20%. or I'm just guessing. I, I have no inside information on this. And he puts a shitload of them in there. And the rest of it goes to the charity. It doesn't matter who wins and loses if he is putting in most of the field. I, I, I guess if... Uh, um, I guess if you have people winning who bought in for themselves, then it affects him. But otherwise, he knows he'll lose a certain percentage to whoever wins and you know keeps their part of the stake. But then he gets back uh, you know whatever percentage, he, large percentage he's keeping for himself of the buy-in, and then of course the eleven thousand eleven hundred one hundred eleven dollars goes to the charity from the buy-in, and that he's not taking back. So basically, it's kind of a backdoor way for him to give to the charity and put on an exciting poker tournament. And for him, that's a lot more interesting than just saying, I'm going to donate uh, five million bucks to this charity this year. This way, he's donating it in a way where it gives a lot of poker pros a way to play this big tournament, creates a lot of excitement, brings a lot of attention to the one-drop charity. It's a lot better that way, and I don't blame him. I think it's pretty ingenious what he's doing. But... What if you give the money to somebody who is so unethical that they take the money and run and don't ever register? Now, there's a story that went around, the true story, of Jonathan IMHIV Drain, young kid, who uh, stole from a number of his friends. He was staying in a house with a bunch of, uh, bunch of friends that he knew from online, including... Uh, uh, John D'Agostino and uh, Scott Bowman and uh, Mike Reed and a bunch of others. And I, I don't know which ones gave him money and which ones didn't, but they they collectively staked him like twenty or 30000 for the World Series. This is Jonathan Drain, who's not a bad player. And again, he took the money and ran off with it. And when I say ran off with it, I don't mean he just ran off and kept it. I mean he... He, he you know, deposited it on PokerStars and lost it. He, he shot it off, basically. And then when he didn't have the money anymore, he ran off. Well, Chino Reem allegedly did something similar. That he took 111000 and uh, instead of registering for the one-drop tournament, probably blew it in the pit somewhere. Again, this is all speculation. But uh, that is the rumor as to what occurred. So, uh, if this really happened, that's really unbelievable. Now, first of all, of course, uh, Chino robbed a charity for $11,000. But uh, also to really bite the hand that's feeding you there. I mean, I think this is even worse than borrowing money from people and not paying it back. At least when you're borrowing from someone, they know when they're lending you the money that there is some chance that you can't pay it back, that there's some reason you're borrowing it. Even if you say, oh, I'm good for it, oh, blah, blah, blah. They still know they're lending you. I'm not defending that at all. I think it's stealing if you borrow money under false pretenses and don't pay it back. So don't get me wrong on that. But 
when someone gives you money and says, here is money, here's free money, go register for this $111,000 tournament on me. You can't lose a penny. And you can win whatever percentage of this giant prize pool if you cash. That's an extremely generous offer. And of course, if Chino were to cash in that sort of thing, uh, that would increase his number of staking opportunities as well. Because that would be even more exposure for Chino. Great opportunity for him if this was really offered to him. Now we know for a fact that Chino did not play. So the question is, was he really staked by Guy? And the bigger question is, how could Guy give him $111,000 and trust him to go register? And that's got to be what everyone thought when they heard this story. It's not surprising that Chino would have done this, given his history. What is surprising is that anyone at this point would actually hand him over a hundred grand and say, okay, well, I trust you to go register. I'm sure nothing bad will happen from this. Look, if you want to stake Chino in the one-drop tournament because you think he's a good player, because you think it'll be interesting, because you want to watch him play poker, whatever, it's your money, stake him if you want. But you should walk him over to the cage hand the money to the cashier, watch him get registered, watch them hand him the ticket, and then call the tournament director, call Jack Heffel and say, hey, Jack, Gila Liberté here, do not let Chino Ream get a refund. Because I'm sure it's not easy to get a refund for that event. I'm sure you can't just walk back up to the cage and say, yeah, I'd like my 111K back. Technically, you cannot get a refund for any of the events, even though they do give a refund to just about everyone for every event. So, like, if I register for a $1,500 event tomorrow and then feel sick or feel like I don't feel like playing and go up and say, hey, I want a refund, as long as the event has not started yet, they will give me a refund. It's not my right to get a refund, but they probably will. They usually do. They almost always do, actually. But I'm sure for the one drop, it's a much tougher procedure. I'm sure they have to go through a lot of checks and balances here before they give someone a refund to that event because there's so much money involved. So for that reason, I'm sure Chino couldn't easily get it out of some dumb employee there. I'm sure he'd have to go through a lot of hoops to get a refund, even if he has the ticket in his name. And all they have to do is tell the staff there, tell the supervisors, if this guy comes up and asks for a refund for this event, don't give it to him. And have Chino understand that when you buy him in. Hey, um, I, I'm just letting you know you're not going to be able to get a refund for this. I, I'm buying you for this and this only. And uh, you know, if you try to ask for a refund, you won't get it. <laughs> so, if this really happened, not only is it terrible from Chino's standpoint, not only should the poker world never stake him another penny after this. I mean, they shouldn't have anyway, but they should never stake him again after this if this really happened. But what was Gee thinking? Like, you sometimes wonder, how can a billionaire be so stupid? I mean, yeah, sure, it's 100000 isn't much to Guy, but still, it's $100,000. How could he... I mean, he's obviously heard of Chino in some way, if he's staking him. How can you have heard of Chino Ream at this point in 2013 and not know about his reputation and hand him hundred eleven grand and say, go register? It's just astounding. Even if you're a billionaire, it's still astounding. Now, maybe this all did not happen. Maybe someone invented this story just to get people like me talking about it. And if so, well played. You got me. And apologies to Chino, kind of, 
if I'm wrongly accusing you here. And I have to say, this still has not been verified. And, you know, the next day, or sorry, two days later, when they were having the uh, final table of the one drop, there was a $1,500 buy-in event on June 29th. I was in that event. Didn't last very long. But Chino was in it. I saw in Poker News they reported that Chino was in that event. Nothing about the, the one-drop thing, but he was in it. So imagine doing that and having the balls that show up two days later to play an event that's going on in the same room as the final table of the one-drop. <laughs> There's also a rumor that this was allowed to occur because uh, Guy was busy with that uh, new Michael Jackson show opening. And uh, he didn't have the time to supervise what Chino was doing with the money. So, interesting story. Kind of a disturbing story. But, anyway, that's what I heard. Maybe more will come out in the future. The The problem is I don't know if this will ever be verified because I don't know if Guy wants to admit to this because it makes him look stupid, too. It may be worth 100000 to Guy just to shut up about it and pretend it didn't happen. Well, speaking of money that is uh, being dumped somewhere... Two lock poker pros are dumping their lock money. This is a story that goes along with everything else I've been saying about lock for the last year plus. Really shady poker site. You should never, never play there. I'm not going to name all the reasons why you shouldn't, but... uh, That's so weird. You hear this? That's a Skype. It's a Skype ring, but it's ringing my regular cell phone. And it was ringing my hello? computer. Yeah, hello. Hi. What's going on? This is Jesse Jack. Oh, great. Okay, well, I'm, I'm glad you called in. Uh, welcome to the show. Now, I wanted to tell you, uh, and I'll, I'll trust it's really you. I, I hope this isn't a gag. But, um, it's not. Okay, I, I'll, I'll trust it. I just have this... Uh, I have a feeling it's really you, and if you're if you're tricking me, then good job. But um, this is Jesse Jet, the one I mentioned earlier, that uh, some people on Two Plus Two are accusing the guy of uh, chopping a tournament and running off with the money and not actually chopping with people. Now, I w- I put this out there at the beginning of the show that this is only a rumor, and that there's so many different rumors about what happened there. Some people are even saying. Not only wasn't it Jesse Jett who did this, that nobody did this. This didn't even happen, some are saying. Others are saying they verified it did happen. This is a, a crazy story. I can't figure out what really occurred here. And, and I invited Jesse to call in and defend himself, as I do on this show. Whenever anyone's accused of anything, no matter who they are, I want them to come on here and uh, give their side of the story because maybe they are being falsely accused. And uh, even if there's not, maybe there's another side of the story we haven't heard. So um, we're going to jump to this story right now and uh, you know, suspend what we were talking about with Lock Poker. So, Jesse, uh, before we begin here, uh, j- just to get this out of the way, you did play the, ter- the deep stack on June 16th and June 17th, and you did win that tournament. Is that correct? Correct. Uh, 235. Yeah, it was the 235. And, and did you actually cash... What it says on the Hendon mob of uh, almost fifty-three k, or was there a deal? I cashed the fifty-two k or whatever it was that paid out. So, so you, so that you actually got that full money. That so there was there was no deal. You played all the way to the end, and no one had any expectation at any point that uh, any money would be given to them from your first place payout. That is correct. 
Now, so, so here's my, my questions for you. First of all, how could this story have possibly, like, come out? That's such a weird thing for people to make up. Do you have any idea where this would have um, originated? I did not. That was the first time I heard about it. Whenever I had four or five people contact me on Twitter. So, so this just played out so like a normal. I, have, I, have, I really have no idea. We uh, we played to the final two, um, our final one, I guess. We played heads up. I won the rest of the chips. Um, the first, or me and the second place guy actually both went to the cashier together, um, cashed out our separate amounts. He left before I did, and then I just walked out and took a taxi back to my hotel. Hmm. So, uh, so you have no idea where this came from, and. Um, Okay, but let's talk about your Twitter because that's what that's what got my attention a little bit. Um, yeah, no I, I saw some people who were tweeting at you saying congratulations, whatever people usually would say when you won a tournament. The odd thing I found there was that you had not tweeted, or at least they don't exist anymore, any tweets from you saying, hey, I just won this tournament. So people just seem to magically know you won the tournament and tweeted at you, and then you responded to them, and then you sent, it, you sent them chip uh, pictures, etc., uh, but but you never tweeted how much you won, uh, really any details, and you weren't tweeting as it was happening or even right after you won. So how did these people know that you won to be tweeting at you in the first place? I was uh, texting my cousin throughout the entire tournament, um, and he, as we got down to the final table, he started contacting people from my hometown, um, and then I kept updating him throughout. So I just don't use Twitter. I mean, I use it some, but not that often. Um, and then whenever I won, he told everybody. So I was getting texts and uh, tweets and stuff, so I posted the two pictures I had on my phone. Uh, to be honest, that's by far the most I've won in a tournament, so I was pretty excited when I won and pretty exhausted at 7.30 in the morning or whatever time it was. Hmm. So I just, we, we collected our money and I left, and I forgot to take any pictures of the final hand or, or the chips or anything like that. Um, so then I just posted two pictures I happened to have on my phone from earlier in the tournament. Well, I, I do have to say that uh, if you were guilty of what you were being accused here, I would think the most likely thing for you to do would be to hide and to not to call into the show and deny this. Because uh, th- this is a, a tough thing to deny if you have four or five other people that can refute it. I will say I have not heard from any of the people who were at the final table with you that, you know, that have verified this. So the, the, right. It's just so weird that this would have been made up unless they got the date wrong or something, and maybe it was the next day or the day before. I don't know what to say here because uh, um, everyone zeroed in on you as the guy who did this, and you're an unknown. So people are like, "Oh, some unknown guy. You know, he, he wins money, he regrets making a deal, he he quickly gets his full payout at the cashier and runs off." It's a believable story, uh, and and it it does expose a flaw. In, in the Rio's system with, with chopping tournaments. But if, if you weren't guilty of this, you weren't guilty. And, and then I feel bad for you that this is being uh, propagated on the Internet. So, um, have right. you thought... Right, and um, the, the guy that took sixth place, I believe, is fairly well-known. Yeah, yeah, and, but, uh, that's uh, Kevin he, Saul. Like, people wanted to chop with, like, 18 people left. He goes, I'm not even talking about it. Um, so it wasn't talked about. We did talk about one with four people left. Um, but I had such a chip lead when we talked about it, they were willing to give me the full first place. Um, and then they decided that it wasn't worth it because of the tax implications. Um, I'm trying to figure all that out with people being from different countries and so on and so forth. Yeah. So 
we uh, ended up playing it out to the end. Okay, so so we just play, even with all the discussion. Yeah, the one who finished in sixth was uh, below above uh, Kevin Saul. And I can see why he would never yeah. want an eighteen-way chop. Uh, and and then you say that uh, with four left, they were you know, talking about a deal, but it just never happened because right. they were so far ahead, and we, they just we decided had a, it wasn't worth it. We had a break with four people left, and I believe at that time I had seventeen point five million of the twenty-one million on the table. Wow! Um, and they were willing to give me the full stake and then chop the others um, three ways: two, th- second through fourth. But they decided that it wasn't worth it because of the tax implications. Yeah, um, not... so we ended up playing it all the way throughout. Okay, well, it does say in the the initial story on two plus two, and I don't know if you've shown up there yet. Uh, on my own site, I will. Update. I actually just read. I read through it uh, this evening because I started getting uh, tweets. Okay, so I'll update the story on my site here. Uh, but uh, you know, on two plus two, I would uh, show up yourself. Yeah, my advice to you would be to show up there, make an account if you don't have one already, and and just make a post and say what you said to me here. So everybody understands that you didn't do this, and it does say that the source here is not a liar, but that uh, he cannot recall the exact day and event. But then somehow they zeroed on the, in on this event anyway. So it's maybe this happened and it wasn't you. Maybe it was a different event, uh, the day or before, or day after. So this is a. I'm going to keep up with this story, but I my gut feeling is you're telling the truth. And uh, I mean, I I did show up and play, and I I mean I can even post pictures of the two thirty five deep stack tournaments. I played in two or three more later in the week, so I, I doubt if I went off with yeah. K and was stealing money from people I would have played, went back and played in the same event later in the week. Yeah, yes, and this, the story was that uh, the other person just disappeared. So yeah, that's that's true. You wouldn't, uh, you probably wouldn't be entering the same tournament again if you I mean, just that, screwed everyone. That would be that would be pretty ballsy. <laughs> that would be okay. Well, I, I appreciate you calling in and setting the record straight, and I'm I'm definitely going to post on my site that I believe you and that you called in and defended yourself and. Uh, um, maybe I'll look at the day before and day after, see who won those, and see if I can uh, figure out if this really and happened. I don't, I don't remember hearing any mention of it um, in the events I played in the later in the week either. And I, I would appreciate if people would take my employment information off of two plus two. Yeah, well, uh, you know, PM the mods there. I have no power over two plus two. I, I run Poker Fraud Alert, and I, I have uh, nothing to do with that site, so I I couldn't help you if I wanted to. Uh, so uh, I definitely won't let anyone post that on my site here, but. Uh, Two plus two, the, the mods will take that down. Just uh, get in contact with them, and uh, they'll probably remove that. Yeah. So, all right, th- thanks for calling in, and uh, apologies that, that this happened, and, but congratulations for winning 53K. That's great. All right, thank you. All right, thank you. Bye. Right. That was Jesse Jett. I guess there's no more story on that one. Hmm. I, you know, even if you want to say I, I did a bad thing for... Uh, making a story out of this. I actually didn't. It sounds like it helped him that uh, he was able to call in here. I gave him advice about what to do and how to get his info down. That, that kind of sucks because they're posting about his work and everything. Like, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with posting the personal info of scammers and posting where they work and all that, but only if you're sure they're a scammer. Like, Don't, don't post where the guy works and other crap when you don't know if he's really done it. I mean, <laughs> I mean when I read this story the whole way, I, I couldn't tell if he, did, if he was guilty. I, I just couldn't tell either way. Now I believe him, but uh, I... I would never have condoned that sort of thing on this site when it's not even clear the guy really did anything wrong. So now I'm just wondering if this even happened at all anywhere with someone else or if it just someone totally made this up. So, all right. Wouldn't it be amazing if Chino was wrongly accused too? <laughs> like if he and Chino are both innocent, of course, Chino is not innocent 
overall. Chino did roll a lot of people, just maybe not this particular 111K. So I wonder if I'm talking about like two unsubstantiated rumors here, neither of which are true. But I have to say that the Chino thing, I still... My gut goes toward believing that happened. And with this guy now, I was on the fence before, now I believe he didn't do it. Because, like, who would call into a radio show and deny it, and then you can have, like, five other people step up and say, no, you're full of shit, this really did happen. Like, if you did this, you're just disappearing and hope nobody finds you. Because it's it's a hard thing to deny if you have five people saying you did it. That's why I believe him. All right, so back to lock poker. Um, 33 cents on the dollar. They are selling their chips on there. Who is they? Two of the lock poker pros. And uh, their names are Greg Tiller, also known as Hokey Greg. You can find his Twitter at H-O-K-I-E Greg, G-R-E-G. And also... Jared Hubbard from Minnesota. He is also uh, trying to sell $25,000. Hokey Greg is trying to sell 10000 Both of the identical $0.33 cents on a dollar on the 2 plus 2 trading form. Uh, for those of you that don't know, Lock Poker has been selling way, way, way below face value on 2 plus 2 for quite some time because of all of Lock Poker's problems. Basically, you can't get your money off there. So, uh, last I saw, it was selling at about $0.38 cents per dollar prior to this. So, if you had ten k unlock, you could typically get $3,800 in real money for your ten k that you would then transfer to someone else. Now, Locke is actually okay with people doing this. Locke does not have a policy against trading money on 2 plus 2 at a loss. They're fine with that. So, lock money keeps going down and down and down in value. Now, if you remember a few months ago, when lock wasn't paying anyone at all, they were and they were canceling people's cash outs. They were claiming that they were canceling cash outs because there were people who were buying up lock money on two plus two, really cheap, and then cashing it out at full value. And Locke claimed they didn't like that. Locke claimed that the reason these people were able to do that was because certain people on Locke, who were like affiliates, had priority cash-outs and could get their money out faster, and they were taking advantage of the priority cash-outs by uh, buying up money cheaply on 2 plus 2 and then using the priority cash-out system to get the money out faster at full value. And Locke said that's not right, and Locke claimed that this was going to cause the value of their chips to collapse on 2 plus 2. And people asked, why do you even care about that? Why do you care if people trade on 2 plus 2? But they were insisting that that would cause that, which is full of crap. That's, that, there's no way that would even happen. And Locke provided no evidence that any of these affiliates were really doing this. It turned out the whole thing was almost surely just a story as to why they were canceling cash outs, because in reality, Locke probably just didn't have the money to pay anyone. But this was their story at the time that they were canceling all these cash outs as part of a wide ranging investigation where they cast a very wide net to catch these people at buying lock poker money too cheap and then cashing out at full value through the priority system that affiliates could use. So let's get back to what's happening here. Two of their own pros are not only selling five figures worth of lock money 
at 33 cents on a dollar, but this was actually lower than everybody else was willing to sell at the time. Recall I said people were selling at about 38 cents on the dollar. So let's look at this. Let's say we have Joe Lock Player. Not a pro, just a regular guy named Joe Lock Player. And he has $5,000 on Lock. And he wants to get rid of it. And says, I, I don't have any faith in Lock. I just want to get what I can. He sees it's going for about $0.38 cents a do- for, for every dollar. And says, okay, I'm posting here. I'm willing to sell my $5,000 worth of Lock at $0.38 cents per dollar. All the way up to 5K. Who wants it? Well, there's a good chance people would have bought his money for $0.38 cents on the dollar if this was the going rate. But what if somebody else shows up then, like Greg Tiller, Hokie Greg, and says... I'm selling 10000 at $0.33 cents on the dollar. Now, would you ever pay anyone $0.38 cents on the dollar when somebody else is offering even more lock money at $0.33 cents on the dollar? Of course not. It's the same reason you, you wouldn't buy a can of soda for a dollar when you, the place right next door is selling for $0.50. Cents. You'll always buy the identical product for cheaper if you can and if it's not a lot of trouble. So the pros here were causing the accepted value of lock chips to plummet from 38 to 33 cents on the dollar. That's what they did, because no one's going to buy it at 38 cents, or anything more than 33 cents, until all $35,000 worth of 33 cents on the dollar sells. And when I say $35,000, it's because Hokie Gregg is selling 10000 Jared Hubbard is selling 25000 both of them, right around the same time, offered to sell at 33 cents on the dollar. And people were scratching their heads saying, what the hell? First of all, these guys are locked pros. Does this mean the locked pros have no faith in their own site? To where they're, they're willing to accept more than a two-thirds loss on their money? But second, why on earth would they be trying to sell at 33 cents in the dollar when people are getting 38? Are they, are they stupid? Well, the conclusion was that the reason they put a price so much lower than everyone else was because they wanted the money off ASAP. They want it now. And they don't want anyone jumping ahead of them. So they didn't want to go down to 37 cents because they were afraid someone else would jump in and say, okay, I'll sell at 36 cents now. And then, again, no one's going to buy from them. So if Hokie Greg wants his 10K off, he can't just lower by one penny. He's got to lower by, like, five cents to where he thinks no one's going to undercut him at that point. So by doing that, by flooding the market with $35,000 worth of lock money that is being sold now at $0.05 cheaper on the dollar than it was before, that has changed the value of what lock money can sell for on 2 plus 2. Now what's funny about this is this is exactly what Shane, the 2 plus 2 rep, said a few months ago they didn't want. Shane said, we don't want the 2 plus 2 marketplace with, with you know selling money on there we don't want that we don't want the value of lock to drop on there because it makes us look very bad it hurts our players who want to cash out quickly we don't want to see the value keep dropping so that's why we're canceling cash outs here we're we're doing everything we can to stop the value from dropping but here two of their own pros are definitely causing the value to drop now you're thinking well maybe these pros are rogue maybe they just did it without uh, locks permission Maybe this is against Lock Pro rules, and they did it anyway. No. Here is Shane's response on 2 Plus 2. He wrote, Just want to add two pieces of clarification. One, this isn't a case of a player selling all their funds. It's about them selling off part of their role for some instant cash. <laughs> Why does that even matter? Who cares if it's all of their funds or part of their funds? 
And number two, we've said all along that pros are under the same cash-out conditions of regu- as regular players. This means that just like everyone else, pros occasionally sell parts of their role to get faster access to funds. So basically he's saying, yeah, this is fine. The pros need their money like you guys do. So yeah, sometimes they'll come on this forum and sell at a discount, no problem. So that shows that Locke totally condones this. So this proves that what they were claiming a few months ago is a lie. Now, we always knew it was a lie, but this proves it. Because Locke, a few months ago, was canceling everyone's cash-outs, claiming that every single person who was cashing out $10,000 was involved in this nefarious ring to drive down the, the Locke poker prices on 2 plus 2. And they care so much about that happening. But here it, ha- here it happened. Here the price dropped by $0.05 cents per dollar, by you know, more than 5%. Because, uh, you know, how many percent is that? It's like 15% had dropped from 38 to 33. And Shane's like, hey, that's cool. No problem. That's okay. He needs his money. So that proves Locke doesn't care about what it trades for on 2 plus 2. That was just an excuse a few months ago as to why they were canceling cash outs because they just couldn't pay anyone. But getting back to the present, the big question is, why is Hokey Greg selling 10K at 33 cents in the dollar? Why is Jared Hubbard selling 25k at 33 cents in the dollar? Why did they suddenly decide to do this within like a day of each other? Why did they both choose the number 33 when it was going for 38 at the time? And do they have any insider knowledge that Locke is about to crash down and their money is about to be worth zero? Is there is there a reason they need to get the money off that quickly and that desperately? Well, of course, Shane's explanation was that just, hey, some people need money. These pros needed money here. They needed quick cash. They couldn't wait for the cash out. So that's, you know, they're trying to undercut the going rate to get quick money. You know, who doesn't need quick money every so often? But that fails the sanity check, and I'll tell you why. When you are established in the poker community, like Greg Tiller, like Jared Hubbard, you have the benefit of being able to get people to stake you and to borrow from people. As you can see, even guys like Chino manage to get staked. Even like Chino, even Chino manages to get loans these days. Even with his terrible reputation. So if you are Greg Tiller, who has a fine reputation aside from being associated with Locke, Jared Hubbard, same thing. Nothing shady about him aside from representing Locke. Do you think these guys, let's, let's look at Greg for a second. He was willing to sell 10k worth of money on lock for 3300. Now, do you think Greg Tiller could not get someone in poker to loan him 3300, especially if he gave some kind of favorable interest? Usually, poker players don't even get interest when they get people to loan, to loan them money. But can you imagine if a well-known guy like Greg Tiller went to people that he's known for a long time from poker and said, "Hey, I need 3300 right now, but I'll sweeten it for you." If you give it to me now, I will repay you $4,300. you will make 1000 bucks just for loaning me the money now. There would be people lining up to loan the guy the money. Not me, but there would be people lining up to loan him the money because he'd, he could probably get a loan anyway for zero interest. But if he were to like add $1,000 to it, he'd have a ton of people ways. What's another way? He could get staked. Let's say he wants to play World Series events. Let's say he needs the 3300 to play the World Series. He could easily get people to stake him 
at the World Series, especially if he gave them a favorable staking arrangement, which is better than you would typically expect with someone of his skill set and results. And again, definitely be worth it to him compared to giving up more than two-thirds of his money. Why would anyone ever give up $10,000 and get 3300 for it? There's only one reason that would ever happen. And that is when they believe that that 10000 may be worth zero if they don't get 3300 right now. If they don't have any faith that they can ever turn that $10,000 on paper into a real $10,000, then they will sell it at a discount. This is not about speed of cash out. This is about ability to cash out at all, ever. Now, I don't think that Jennifer Larson, the CEO of Lock Poker, gave Hokie Greg here any inside information. I think he used the same common sense that I've been using and everyone else has been using, that Lock Poker is in huge trouble and that it's time to jump ship. Maybe he and Jared Hubbard are friends and they both decided together, hey, we're going to get our money off here. We don't care if it costs us two-thirds of what we have on the site. We just want to get something here because we don't like the way this is looking and we think it's going to all crash down real soon. Not inside information, just just looking at the whole thing and going, you know what, we're not drinking Jennifer's Kool-Aid anymore. We're out of here. So first they want to get their money off and then maybe they'll quit. Or maybe they won't quit. And that brings me to my next point. If Greg Teller was selling off his money at 33 cents on the dollar and then resigning from lock, or you know, at the same time resigning from lock, if he says, I'm, I'm no longer a lock pro, and by the way, my money's for sale. All right, fine. I mean, I don't know why it would take till now to do it, but fine. Let me read you some of Greg Teller's tweets from as recently as June 24th, just eight short days ago. If you haven't already, check out the new Lock-exclusive tournament schedule. And it's a tournament schedule for Lock Poker. June 23rd, $500 bounties for the $60,000 guaranteed this Sunday on Lock Poker. Sign up lobby tournament event. Then another similar tweet about the uh, $500 bounties for the 100k guaranteed. Then he did the same thing again on June 21st. So this guy is actively promoting lock poker, but selling off his money there at 33 cents on the dollar to get a measly 3300 bucks. It's not like he's selling off 500k at 33 cents on the dollar saying, "Hey, there's no way I'll get all of this off the site ever." Like, it's just going to be too long to get all this money, so I just, I'd rather take 33% of it now than wait for 500k to come to me piecemeal. No, that's not what he's doing. Really, really slow. There's still people who have requested cash outs in January that do not have them yet, who are not in the U.S. But I think Greg Tiller and Jared Hubbard realize that, especially for U.S. players, you're not getting your money. So they'd rather take a little less than a third right now rather than wait for the inevitable where they get nothing. So the worst part of this is that they are still lock pros, they're still representing lock, and Greg Tiller, at the same time that he's selling off his money for 33 cents on the dollar, is still promoting lock to unsuspecting fans who think it's a good place to play because he recommends it. And they don't know that he's dumping his money at such a a low rate because he has no faith in them. I don't know how these guys look themselves in the mirror. But you know, a lot of poker players are like that. There's so much out for themselves that they just don't care who they hurt as long as it benefits number one in the short term.
And I hope nobody ever hires these guys to be pros on any other sites. I hope they get blackballed. Probably won't happen, though, because, uh, you know, look at all the full tilt people who rebounded, including ones that kept uh, representing them till the end. Let's talk about somebody who is a pretty well-known player who claims he's done. Chino, not Chino Reem. Oh, I wish he was done. Viffer, David Pete, claims he is done playing poker. Here's what he wrote on Facebook. I think it was yesterday. My poker career is over. Just not fun anymore. Time for new adventures in life. Time for new adventures in life. What is he going to do? Like, like, what are his skills aside from playing poker? He came into the game very young. I, what career can he move on to? I, I don't understand. What new adventures? I mean, there's only so many adventures you can have that uh, don't involve either uh, your job or uh, some kind of business you start on your own. I, I don't think he's really that type. I mean, sure, you can have like short-term adventures and vacations or whatever, but you know, the rest of his life, the guy's in his 30s. Early 30s. But that's what he claims. My poker career's over. Just not fun anymore. Time for new adventures in life. People are speculating maybe he's broke. But I, I don't believe it because... I think that uh, if he were broke, he would find people to stake him. There's a lot of people that really respect his game. And he could really get staked by a whole lot of people. And still be able to play. And in fact, no one would even know it. They would still think it's his own money he's playing with. Now, maybe he went on a losing streak and decided the game's too hard at the high stakes. Maybe he just got bored. Maybe he had a bad personal experience with with friends he had from poker. Maybe he was even dating a female in poker we didn't know about and uh, had a bad experience with that. But he's claiming he's done. I think he will come back. Uh, Especially, this is a degenerate gambler, David Pete. This is somebody who's worked his gamble into his game and did so successfully. But this is a guy who plays for the love of gambling. And that's different from someone who plays because they want to make money. For example, I admit that I enjoy poker, that I like the game, but I also admit that I'm more playing for money than I'm playing for fun. Uh, There are moments where it's fun. But uh, I'm doing it mainly for money. If uh, someone could tell me that uh, from now till the end of my life I'm going to break even in poker, I would play once in a while, but I wouldn't wouldn't play very much. Because, you know, what, what I'm hoping to do is two things. I'm hoping, number one, to make money. And number two, maybe to win, you know, one or more bracelets beyond what I already have. And just, you know, have that to look back on and say, hey, I won this many bracelets. Thought maybe I had a second this year, but uh, didn't quite happen for me. Still the main event. (laughs) Probably not, though. Probably not going to win the bracelet on that one. By the way, you know, if I won the main event, I would still do this show. I would not abandon this site. I would not abandon this show. I'd be the same guy. 
just uh, like nine million bucks richer. But uh, not counting on it. Anyway, I think he's just frustrated with something at the moment, and he'll probably come back. We've had a lot of people over the years quit poker only to come back. I mean, it's a it's a very addictive game, and when you're that ingrained in the community, something else you find is that it defines you to some degree. Especially someone like Viffer, who you know is a lot better known than I am, for example. And when Viffer has people coming up to him going, oh man, you're Viffer, oh, I love watching you on TV, oh, you're such a great player, blah, 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 blah. Like, you know, if he quits that and, and then people forget who he is and the new players have no idea who he is and... You know, he'll be walking down the street. No one will know who the hell he is. I mean, the the more time that passes he doesn't play, the less known he becomes, the less relevant he becomes. And no one's going to care in, in 2033 if 20 years ago, 25 years ago, he was a, a great player on TV. No one's going to give a crap anymore. So it's hard for people to just walk away from it like that. And unlike, like, it's the same thing like in athletics. Same reason like a... a really good player who turns 40 and isn't as good anymore sometimes has a hard time walking away from the game I'm talking about like athletics now not poker even when it's time for them to do so because they just can't play at the same level they once did because their body has aged but that doesn't happen in poker in poker you can uh, pretty much remain the same player for many 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 years because it's uh, it's not a physical game so I don't see David Pete quitting for good now, he wasn't always a big name in poker. Let me tell you my story about Viffer. On Poker Stars in 2004, he used to always come to the 100-200 limit game, which was the big game on Stars at that point. And he would sit down, and he would never play. He'd sometimes talk shit, but he would never play. I remember he had a picture of Buckwheat as his avatar, you know, from the Little Rascals. He would come into the game sit down and immediately sit out. I called him the sit-out king, because he was. He was he sat out more in that game than anyone, but he never played. I used to try to entice him to play. I had no idea who he was. Nobody knew who he was. I thought he was probably some fish who just wanted to see himself sitting at the game, and I figured if he sits in, he's probably terrible. Now, the truth is he's not that good of a limit player, but uh, that aside, I didn't think he was any good of any player. Now, in 2005, when uh, I won my bracelet at the World Series, in that event is the first time I met Viffer. Late in the event, when there were empty seats at the table, Viffer walked over, sat in an empty chair next to me, and said, hey, can I sit out here? (laughs) That was the way I met him. And that shows you how well-known he was for sitting out. That in 2005, he came up to me, and that was the way he introduced himself, by asking if he could sit out next to me in a tournament. So, uh, you think of Viffer today, you'd never think he was once better known for sitting out in high-stakes games rather than actually playing them, which is a great contrast to the risk-averse nosebleed player that he became. So, it's funny to see how a lot of these people rose up from nobodies on poker stars to become very well-known players, like the Grinder. I always tell this story. The the Grinder was one of the biggest fish in the 3060 limit game. I used to love when the Grinder would sit there. I go, boy, this guy sucks. 
Who is this grinder? There's no way he's a grinder. This guy's terrible. Like I, I, I used to beat this guy all the time on stars, and that's because I, I ran well against him. He just wasn't good. And then, uh, then he found no limit tournaments and uh, started winning those. Had a huge like 2006 and won a whole lot of money. Then he uh, blew all that money. And then all of a sudden he he rose up to be a, a great mixed game tournament player too. And this guy is really one of the best tournament players out there now. The grinder, Michael Mizraki. But boy, I would have never guessed that from the fish I was playing against on Poker Stars back in 03. And uh, Durr, he actually began in this community. Durr used to uh, post on Everyone Poker. Total nobody back then. Actually went up to me at a karaoke place one time and said he was honored to finally meet Dan Druff. And he wasn't being sarcastic. He he really was like honored to meet me, the big name player. <laughs> and he was the nobody. It's funny how that's reversed. People sometimes don't believe me when I tell the story that Durr was honored to meet me, that Durr thought I was the famous player. <laughs> because compared to him at the time I was. Now compared to him, uh, I'm the complete nobody. So, these were all people who began uh, really as nothings, and I, and I got to know in some way, and have blown up. Say a few good things about Viffer, um, aside from him being a good player. Uh, he was one of the people who aggressively pushed the stock trader collusion story on 2 Plus 2 until they finally had to deal with it. Stock trader Nick Gredzian was one of their authors over there, and uh, they did not want to accept on 2 Plus 2 that he was a colluder and that he was a multi-accounter. And they were deleting the threads being started about it with a flimsy reason that the person starting the thread was supposedly a banned user. But it it was all BS. It was just a a cover-up over there. And uh, finally, Viffer, who of course was a well-known player, he came out himself and said, look, I I don't have much to do with this personally, but I I believe it to be true. And he cited all the information he had and he he posted all the information he was given. And he he kept pressing this so hard I even interviewed him on a, my radio show at the time. He pressed this so hard that they couldn't ignore it anymore on 2 Plus 2. They, they could not keep de- deleting Viffer's posts about this without looking really bad. So at that point, they left it up, and at that point it all unraveled, and at that point it turned out, yeah, Stock Trader was colluding and he was multi-accounting. And that was the end of him. We haven't heard from Stock Trader since then. He's been gone for three years now. He's never coming back. So we have to thank Viffer for that, because Viffer had nothing to do with that story, but Viffer just felt it was right to bring it out to the forefront because it was being silenced. And props to Viffer for that. Props for getting involved in something that really he didn't have to get involved in. It had nothing it, it wasn't hurting him any, but he got involved anyway for the good of everyone else, for the good of the community, and uh, I have to admire him for that. So I think he'll be back. Let me uh, go to our next topic. If you want to call in 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355, show your caller ID. You can also call me 702-430-1808 on the Mount Charleston phone number or try to get to me in the chat room. I'm checking it every so often. Let us see. What is our next topic here on Z Agenda? Ultimate Poker. 
two Ultimate Poker stories. Ultimate Poker, of course, being the only existing legal online poker room for real money in the United States. It is run by Station Casinos. You can only play it if you're physically present in the state of Nevada. Don't have to be a Nevada resident, but you have to be physically present in the state. I have played on it somewhat. About broken even. Up a tiny bit, but nothing worth bragging about. I'm no Eric Ryland. But, uh... I guess there's a good story and a bad story about Ultimate Poker this week. The good story is that they are coming to the state of New Jersey. That's right. New Jersey, which has a similar intrastate, meaning within the same state, online poker legalization uh, that has been passed. So they will be able to be doing the same thing that uh, Nevada is doing, where you can play online poker if you're in New Jersey physically against other people in New Jersey physically. New Jersey has a bigger population than Nevada by a good deal. They have 8.8 million people there compared to 2.8 million in Nevada. So that should help the site be bigger than the Ultimate Poker in Nevada. Now, they do get the benefit of uh, tourists coming to Vegas, but you know, still not enough. It's still much better to have a bigger state because the residents are the ones that are there constantly. The tourists are only there temporarily, and most of them don't want to sit around and play online poker. That's not why most people come to Vegas. But uh, they're expected to be up and running in New Jersey around November, maybe even sooner. So uh, this is the news article from Bluff.com, current employer of Seriously Serious. Uh, it says, uh, The DLC's Ultimate Poker, uh, Ultimate Gaming provide the Trump brand, so they're associating themselves with the Trump Taj Mahal, uh, with more than just online poker. According to the company's press release, Ultimate Gaming will provide Trump with a, quote, wide range of real money online casino games and poker using its proprietary technology platform and Ultimate brand. So this is interesting. It's not going to be just poker. uh, That since in New Jersey you can play anything, that uh, as long as it's, you know, you're physically in the state, anything that is a licensed game within New Jersey can be done online. So that's a different law than Nevada, which only allows poker. They're going to provide everything. Blackjack and who knows what else. Um, So they... uh, There's nothing mentioned here about uh, when or if they will cooperate with Nevada. Obviously, if they cooperate with Nevada, uh, Nevada residents will not be able to play any of the casino games. But as far as poker, will they ever share players? I hope so. Because if they do that, then that sets a precedent to where... Other states will join in, and then pretty much we're going to have uh, close to a national poker room, because I think a lot of other states will join in, and it'll be as close as we can get to federally legalized online poker as we're going to have for a while. But it's not quite here yet. Right now the plan is just to get this up and have it only be for New Jersey residents. Maybe eventually the two will cooperate. I know Nevada recently passed a law making it okay to cooperate with uh not only other states, but other countries, and even Indian tribes. So, Nevada's open into doing it, and uh, I think it'll be even easier to do if you have the same brand in both states. It's not like Ultimate Poker cooperating with WSOP.com. This is Ultimate Poker cooperating with Ultimate Poker. So I hope we'll see them cooperating sometime soon. 
The bigger the player pool, the better the games and the more viable this online poker will be. And most importantly, once we just have two states cooperating, then that sets a precedent and then we will have a lot more. And we will have to see if the federal government ever tries to interfere in that. If they ever try to say, wait a minute, you can do it within your state, but once you cross state lines, that's interstate play. That's uh, interstate gambling. We don't want that. And they may interfere. The, The federal government may tell the states, you can't do this. But we'll see. Maybe they won't care. Just have to keep our fingers crossed and hope that this goes the right direction. But at least New Jersey's getting it. That's the first step. Now here's a bad story about online poker. About Ultimate Poker, specifically. Ultimate Poker, uh, since they are a regulated poker site, the one crappy thing about this is that uh, they have to follow this very uh, obnoxious set of uh, bureaucratic rules as far as modifying the software. Basically, the software has to be approved by a third party and by the regulators before it can ever be used to run real money poker games. So the version they have right now is approved, but they if even even they change one line of code, then it becomes not approved. Then they have to get it approved all over again. So they can't just say, "Oh, we found a bug, we're going to fix this right now." They can't do that. They have to get the whole thing approved all over again as if it's a different piece of software. So this is a very difficult process, and I I really wish that they would streamline this. I really wish that there would be some kind of uh I don't know, uh, some kind of exception made where you can fix bugs and you know, as long as you don't change more than such and such number of lines of code or such and such percentage of the code, you can do this and get it reviewed within uh, you know, 15 days from then or something that will allow quick bug fixes so you're not trapped with, with very bad and damaging bugs in the software. This is a very bad system they have right now, but this is, these are going to be some of the growing pains that we go through with the legalized online poker market. You know, with PokerStars, they just did what they felt like. PokerStars is like, oh, we have a bug? Okay, we'll fix it right now. Okay, it's fixed. Uh, we're we're going to make you download the new software when you start the software again. And it's done. And you don't even think about it. You're like, oh, th- oh good, PokerStars fixed the bug. Well, it's not like that here. Here it's this whole bureaucratic nightmare to get even one bug fixed. So, we have a bug. I shouldn't even say it's a bug. It's a, you know, an old programmer's joke is that it's not a bug, it's a feature. It's a a way a programmer can defend when there's a bug that, you know, kind of like I meant to do that. It's a feature of the software, it's not a bug. Well, this actually kind of is a feature, but it's a bad feature. Now, let's think about when you sit down at a poker table in a live card room. Not talking about online right now, but in a live card room, you sit down... And some other guy says, hey, you want to play heads up? You're like, yeah, sure. And then you ask the room, hey, can you run a heads up game? They say, okay. They bring a dealer over. Who gets the button? The answer is you draw for the button. You you each pick a card. The person with a higher card gets the button. That's a fair way to determine who gets the button when you're starting up a new game. But tell me if this is fair. Let's say you're playing against the guy. And he says, oh, you know what? I have to go take a piss. I'll be right back. You Okay, no problem. He goes off to the bathroom, comes back, supposed to be your button next, and he says, ah, 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 that's not your button next. We're starting a new game, so we're going to draw for the button. You would get pissed. You'd say, what the hell? This was my button. We're playing a contiguous game here. Just because you got up to go to the bathroom doesn't mean that you get to draw for the button that was rightfully mine. This is the same game. 
It's one thing if we quit and come back eight hours later. <laughs> this is the same game. You just you just left for a few minutes. We, we're not drawing for the button, and there's no way that any floor man, no matter how bad he is, no matter how dumb he is, no way any floor man would allow the button to be drawn for again. The floor man would say, "No, you guys are in the same game. Keep playing." You know, and and uh, you know, the person who had the button keeps it. Well, would you believe in ultimate poker? That this is what happens? That they actually draw for the button if anyone sits out in a heads-up match? So all you have to do when someone gets the button is sit out, sit back in, and guess what? You draw for the button again. You have a 50% chance of getting the button back when you shouldn't have it. So as you can imagine, a bunch of asshole angle shooters are abusing this on Ultimate Poker. I was the victim of one of them. The person who did it to me plays as Miss Unique. M-S-U-N-I-Q. Though I don't think it's a girl, even though it's a a female name. I I think it's a dude. Anyway, Miss Unique did this crap to me, but didn't do it in a completely obvious way to where I actually fell for it like three or four times. This is what they did. They played a few hands against me, then sat out. And then they said, uh, BRB five min. And and waited, I don't know, three or four minutes and came back. So I thought, okay, maybe, maybe he started playing and then someone came to the door. We start playing again. Maybe play eight more hands. Sits out again. Says BRB. Comes back. Then we play like, I don't know, four more hands, whatever. Again, BRB sits out. Three minutes, he says. That's when I I put it together. That's like, oh my God, I see what he's doing here. He's not doing it every hand because that'll be too obvious, but he plays a few hands. As soon as it's my button, he sits out and we draw for it again. So I called him out, and I said, yeah, you're stealing the button from me. I see exactly what you're pulling. And then he ran off. So uh, I reported him to Ultimate Poker, and they, they agreed that this is a problem. They said they've already fixed it, but they cannot put the fixed version online until they get this approved by regulators. In the meantime, I should tell them how much I think this cost me in expectation, and, and they'll discuss about maybe giving me that amount of money back. <laughs> so, so this is what they're stuck doing, like making people estimate how much they probably lost out of this whole thing, uh, and then you know, paying them the money back. And then they claim they're going to investigate this angle shooter too, hopefully ban him. But uh, how did they ever think this was a good idea in the first place? I mean, I understand the drawing for the button, but how do they think that redrawing every time someone sits out and sits back in is a good decision. Like, this is what I've meant when I said they need an intelligent person in charge of the whole software development and testing process. Not necessarily someone actually programming it, but someone who can run through everything and say, no, 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 this is wrong. I've been playing online poker for 10 years. This should not happen. Because any experienced player would say, no, 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 that's awful. But the problem is they don't have someone like that. They have an experienced player in Terrence Chan as, like, He's doing like customer service things, but but uh, you know he's not. I don't think he's running through the whole software as like a tester and telling them what's screwed up before they actually launched. So the problem was they launched this way, then all the poker players are collectively face palming all these bugs and, and and stupid features on there like this, and then they can't even change it in a timely fashion because of Nevada regulations. So whole thing's a big mess and. Uh, they really need to change this process, and it, it just makes me scratch my head sometimes to think about how Ultimate Poker came up with some of these ideas of, that they have. <laughs> Draw for the button every time somebody sits out. It's unbelievable. So, as I said, a good and a bad thing about it. I'm not to the point where I'm going to boycott them. Like, yeah, they're okay. 
they, they do try. They have been uh, willing to refund money to people. But yeah, you remember like last week or the week before we had Ryland on here, and he was talking about how their software crashed. He sent them proof of their crashes, and they blamed it on him, saying it's a disconnect. He's like, no, it's not a disconnect. It crashed. But the worst part was they didn't even email him. They emailed someone else instead of him. So they answered his email to someone else and offered him a dollar. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, we, we acknowledge all these crashes. Here's a dollar. Go buy yourself something pretty. Crazy. So they, they have a lot to learn, both customer service-wise and software-wise. And I think when WSOP.com starts offering real money, it's going to blow them out of the water. Unless they really clean up their act. They definitely are paying the price of being first to market. Well, here's a site that's uh, kind of first to market. But I, I don't know what the market is. It's called Attack Poker. Attack Poker sounds like uh, know, sounds like a very like aggressive poker site. You're going to be up against players that are always attacking your stack. and You wouldn't picture Attack Poker to be a free poker site. But that's what it is. I can't figure out from looking at Attack Poker. You can go there at attackpoker.com. I can't figure out how they make money. They they basically you play free money poker games and win prizes. Not the greatest prizes, but uh prizes nonetheless. They also have pros. Uh let's let's see Team Attack. Loading up here. Um here we are. Team Attack. Lisa Hamilton says WSOP bracelet winner. I don't. She must have won like the, the women's event or something. I have no clue who she is. Luke Schwartz, poker's badass. Ellie Lesra, interesting selection. Billy Baxter, another interesting selection. Poker Hall of Fame member. Seven bracelets. And here's the weirdest one. Black Friday Chad. Chad Ellie, Black Friday defendant, poker activist. <laughs> and they show a picture of him. You know, like they, they show all these different players either playing poker or holding their winning hands or whatever. Uh, Luke Schwartz, they're just kind of showing him, like sitting there staring you down with his arms crossed. Um, Black Friday Chad, they show him at a table with Senator Harry Reid. <laughs> so, um, yeah. He's a pro on the site now. And he claims he's playing the main event. He didn't say directly that they're buying him in, but I, I think that's what they're doing. I think they're they're putting up 10K for Chad Ellie, convicted online poker payment processor, to play the main event. Isn't that kind of an odd thing? Why do they even have pros? Like, how are they making money here? Who's, who's funding this? I, I totally don't understand this site. Like, look at this. Um, now, this couldn't be the same grinder. Congratulations to the grinder for finishing first place in the May tournament and joining all the winners for an exciting trip to Las Vegas and an attack poker party valued at 25k. So I, I don't think the Ms. Rocky was sitting here playing a free roll to, to win a, a package worth 25k, but uh, someone who calls himself the grinder won this and that, you know they're giving him some kind of travel package and World Series main event buy-in and whatever um, which they claim is worth 25k the whole thing 
But I, I still this is not a subscription site, from what I can tell. I I just don't see how you would ever make money. You can just register and start playing. It even says it's free. Really strange. I never really trust something that I can't figure out how it's making money. Do you remember? Uh, do you remember? Of course, you remember the Epic Poker League. No one understood how that made money. They had some sort of like weird explanation that they were making money through, or they're going to make money through some app. But it was all very like, it was all very abstract. They didn't have any kind of real business plan to make money. They they spent money like it was going out of style, putting themselves on TV and buying slots on TV to, and you know, having a supposedly a million dollar free roll. But they couldn't explain where the money came from. And the truth was it came from the investors that they just bled dry and then Annie paid herself a big salary. I never trust a business where you just can't figure out how they're making money. By the way, I see in the chat room right now we have one of our new female users, Bad Guy 23's girlfriend, Josie the Pussycat. So I wonder if uh wonder if she's gonna call tonight. Or if Bad Guy will call. That'll always be interesting. Um I have to I have to tell you guys this. Bad guy and uh Josie. I don't know if you saw this on my Twitter. But I was walking through Caesars, and there's still time for this, by the way, and I saw a poster on the wall. The poster says, Pure Nightclub, Saturday, July 6th, New Kids on the Block. That's right. New Kids on the Block are going to be in Las Vegas in just four days at Caesars Palace at the Pure Nightclub. I'm not making this up. You can go look it up. So, uh... I think that bad guy now really has to come to Vegas. I think that uh, he's obligated. After promising he'd come World Series after World Series and saying especially he'll be here this time, and now not only can he come and meet me and other Poker Fraud Alert members, but he can also take his girlfriend to meet new kids on the block at the Pier Nightclub. I mean, you can't do better than that. So. We need a website. Check out Josie the Pussycat. Million people have already created a free Vegas. Vegas is calling you. that bad guy? Get used to it. July 6th in Las Vegas. You can see this in person. Pure nightclub, July 6th. Save the date. Alright. Anyway. There's only one pure location, by the way. Someone's asking in the chat room. Are there are a few pures. No, there's only one pure that I know of. It's in Caesars. It's uh, actually close to the poker room. So, um, 
let me talk about our next topic. The On Game Network. This won't be a very uh, long discussion, but uh, I thought it was interesting. I thought it was something that's very telling about uh, the way online poker sites really handle our money. Because you deposit to an online poker site, and it says, you know, let's say you deposit 5000 and then you win 2000 So it says you have 7000 You look at your balance of 7000 You picture your 7000 just sitting there, and at any time you can hit cash out, and the 7000 will be sent to you because they're holding it for you. But they're probably not. They've probably spent your seven thousand. They've probably spent the majority of your seven thousand, and don't really have much. And they're just telling you you have seven thousand, but in reality you don't have seven thousand, unless you're quicker in getting to that seven thousand than the other players on there. So the on-game network, which has existed for a very long time, and eventually became property uh, of BWIN Party, to where BWIN Party was was backing it, and they technically owned it, but on-game functioned as its own entity. So, so basically, B-Win was saying, hey, you can trust OnGame because we own it, but we're not getting involved with it unless we really have to. So uh, we're backing it, but they're running their own game. Well, when OnGame was running their own show, they went on to spend 69% of the player cash on deposit. When B-Win Party sold OnGame, to the Amaya company, and these are you, know, you can't play on on game for you or U.S. player, but uh, you'll see why this is interesting. It, report, it uh, recently a report surfaced that in November tw- 2012, when uh, the sale took place, on game only had 31 percent of the player money on hand. They only had 4.9 million dollars in cash total in the company, and the player balances totaled $15.7 million. So uh, that meant if all the players asked for their money at once, they would have been... $1 million. Short times almost 11. Now, it's not as bad as it seems, because since B-Win Party was backing it, B-Win Party would have just covered the difference because they're a huge company. They can easily afford $11 million bucks to fix OnGame's mistake. But the point is, if OnGame was still operating as itself, if OnGame did not have B-Win backing it, they would have still operated in the same way, likely, and they just would have been operating with only 31% of the player funds on hand. And that really makes me think that this is not isolated, because we had it happen at Full Tilt, where they only had 2% of the player funds on hand. We had it happen at UB, where they had probably even less than that. And uh, now we had it happen at On Game, and even though that money wasn't technically at risk, because they were being backed by a bigger party, it shows that this is, seems to be the modus operandi for all, or most, of these online poker operators, except for ones that get themselves certified to have the player money segregated and not used for operational expenses like PokerStars does. But I think they're the only one you can really trust to have the money segregated. I think every other network probably doesn't have the full money to pay out. So it's very disturbing, and it's it's very telling about how these, these sites operate. That they just, uh, when they need extra money to spend, they just dip into the player cash. And that's what OnGame did. OnGame obviously couldn't pay all their bills with what they were making in Rake. Or they, they blew what money they were making. They needed some extra money to keep going operationally, keep going uh, you know, from a marketing standpoint. And they just said, hey, we'll dip into player money. So, 
Uh, Amaya has since bought them in November 2012. Amaya claims that they have segregated all the funds. I don't think they've offered proof yet, but they claim they've segregated them. They are a very large company. Of course, so was Full Tilt. But uh, they claim that uh, this is no longer the situation there, that this is the way it was when they bought it back in November 2012. And besides, that uh, people probably wouldn't have lost the money then anyway because B-Win Party was backing it. So it's not so much the money was at risk, it just shows the way they all operate. and it's, it's disturbing. So be very careful when playing online poker these days. Only keep online what uh, you really need to have and aggressively cash out. Otherwise, you might find yourself uh, with nothing. You may think you've won all this money in online poker, and then in reality you've actually won nothing. As I've said for years and years, until the money reaches your bank account, until it sits in your bank, it is not yours, and you have not won it. I don't care if you've won $10 million online. Until that money's actually in your hands, it's not yours, and you haven't won it. So, be careful. That was the point of that little story. Alrighty. Let's talk about the uh, Poker Stars attempted acquisition of Atlantic Club in Atlantic City. Now dead in the water. Now completely dead. It's no longer a matter of it might happen, it probably won't happen, it could happen. No, it's not going to happen. This is basically what occurred. It's an interesting story. It's interesting in a few ways. Um, the Atlantic Club was struggling really, really badly. They're in Atlantic City Casino. Poker stars wanted into the New Jersey market because they knew that uh, New Jersey online gaming was coming very soon. They wanted a piece of that. And they knew the only way they stood a chance to get a license would be if they had an existing casino. They knew that New Jersey would probably only grant licenses to existing casinos there. And that poker stars couldn't just uh, say, hey, we're going to build a new casino and uh, give us a license. They knew the best way in was to buy an existing casino, but it's not that easy to just stroll into Atlantic City and buy a casino. So they found a very cheap casino, the Atlantic Club, which was struggling so badly that... uh, they came to the following agreement. Poker Stars would agree to purchase the Atlantic Club. They would agree to immediately sink $11 million into improvements there. Uh, they would take over some obligations upon the time of purchase that that Atlantic Club had to other companies. And, uh, and also they might, uh, I think they agreed to sink some additional money into um, improving the whole thing. So I, I think these were all the conditions they were going to buy it for. But uh, the sale price was a shockingly low $15 million. Now that may sound like a lot of money to you, and, and it probably is. And to me, $15 million is a ton of money. But uh, to a company like PokerStars, or just to any casino, I mean, that's, just, that's a very, very small sum of money to buy a licensed casino. A functional casino, especially one the size of the Atlantic Club for fifteen million, it's unbelievable. But uh, you know, Poker Stars was buying a company that was in such bad trouble and that owed money; they were just a complete mess that they were willing to, to you know, get out of the whole thing for fifteen million. And, and Poker Stars would be happy getting their casino, and Atlantic Club would be happy getting out of their whole mess, and everyone would be happy. But they weren't, because. When it started to look a lot more like uh, the online gaming would be a reality in New Jersey and not no longer just uh, a point of discussion, 
And when Atlantic Club started to improve and when their business started to get better and when they started to make a lot more money than they were expecting to be making, all of a sudden they realized that $15 million was a tremendous underpricing, that they were going to get rolled big time. I shouldn't say rolled because it would imply that PokerStars cheated them. This was a business agreement, but they were going to be making a very bad deal. But it was too late. The ink was already on the paper. They already signed. But wait a minute. I said that PokerStars made a bad deal here. So, so far it looks like Atlantic Club made the bad deal and PokerStars, uh, once again, were the smart business people running circles around everyone else. So, where did PokerStars go wrong? Well, it was in the contract. Believe it or not, there is a loophole in the contract that Atlantic Club could back out of the entire deal if PokerStars failed to get a license, a gaming license for New Jersey, by April 26, 2013, which wasn't a very long time. PokerStars had a very short time to get that license down, and if they didn't get that license, then Atlantic Club could cancel the contract. Now, that's unbelievable that they would write that in there, because this would give Atlantic Club a way out if they decide later on they don't like the deal. So this this pretty much makes it a free roll for the Atlantic Club, where if they improve and start doing better, or if the prospects of online poker improve in the state of New Jersey, then they can back out of the deal. And if things don't improve, and if things still remain crappy for the Atlantic Club, well, then they can force poker stars to purchase them, and to do everything else they promised in the agreement. So they had all the power. The only thing that poker stars could do to prevent this was to get licensed by April 26th. Well, guess what? It didn't happen. And it didn't seem likely to happen. It just wasn't enough time. And there was a lot of opposition within the state of New Jersey to let PokerStars have a license there because PokerStars was still a criminal organization that was under investigation by the Department of Justice, that had their domain seized by the Department of Justice, that violated the UIGEA uh, with money laundering and all kinds of other tricks to get money on and off the site since 2006. I mean, nothing against PokerStars for doing this because uh, they, you know, they provided us with poker and they were the best site out there. And, and they paid us our money, uh, you know, not our FPPs, they screwed us with those, but uh, you know, they, they were by far the best as far as how they handled Black Friday. But they still broke the law. They broke it big time. And New Jersey did not feel comfortable with this. New Jersey said, you know, we really don't want to license a company like this. We, we want uh, operators that follow U.S. law, not, not keep breaking it until finally the hammer comes down, which is what really happened. So they didn't get their license. And Atlantic Club is like, all right, well, bye-bye. <laughs> That's the end of our agreement. Now, PokerStars is pissed because they put $11 million already into the Atlantic Club, and they're just going to lose this now. So they claim that uh, Atlantic Club was acting in bad faith, taking their $11 million, and then saying, farewell, we're out of here, sales off. Well, I don't blame PokerStars for being mad about this. They did get rolled by the Atlantic Club. So... This was taken to court. PokerStars lost. That's it. It's over. PokerStars, uh, I believe they appealed it. It's done. And uh, PokerStars will not be buying the Atlantic Club, and their $11 million is gone. What people could not believe who analyzed this from a legal standpoint was that this could have occurred in the first place. How is it possible that PokerStars made such a stupid deal? How did they leave Atlantic Club with such an easy out to free-roll them when it would probably be such a big issue to get a license there? Why why did PokerStars assume that it would be so easy to get a license by April 26th or that somehow Atlantic Club wouldn't try to enforce this term of the contract? 
I think PokerStars was so excited to get into the New Jersey market that they would sign anything put in front of them. I, I think maybe Isai Scheinberg might have signed to give over his first grandson to the Atlantic Club if it would have gotten him into that market. I think they were just so eager that they, they slipped up. They weren't thinking. It's kind of like a, a guy who jumps in bed with a, with a girl who has, who has all kinds of sexually transmitted diseases and doesn't use a condom. But he's just like so turned on at the moment, he doesn't care. That's pretty much what Poker Stars was with the Atlantic Club. They jumped into bed with them, they signed a terrible contract, and they didn't bother to think about the ways they could get screwed. They even put $11 million in before they even owned the place. And now they can't get it back. So a rare miss for Poker Stars, a rare bad decision on their part. A rare misstep on their part. So, it's over. It's done. Poker Stars really blew an opportunity, too, because they uh, they maybe could have forced themselves into the New Jersey market, or at least uh, had a much bigger foot in the door. Now they have no foot in the door, and they'll probably never get one again. Or if they will, it'll be a long time. They're not going to find another casino to sell them for uh, $15 million, that's for sure. And the funny thing is, I bet Atlantic Club was desperate enough to not have force them to take that term about April 26th. I bet they would have been willing to have a much later date or maybe not even that requirement at all if PokerStars stood firm. But uh, looks like PokerStars wanted it more than Atlantic Club did and Atlantic Club got the favorable contract. I have a feeling whatever lawyers prepared that contract are probably not working for PokerStars anymore. This is my guess. All right, um... Let's talk about crime at the Rio. There's a poker pro named Eric Sonstegard, also known as Willing to Die. He claims that Rio employees stole 3K and an iPad from his room. If you remember, Genocide claimed that she had money stolen from her safe a few years ago at the Rio. Turned out to be one of her friends, not a poker player, but a, a friend of hers, that had done it and blamed the Rio. So the Rio was innocent as far as genocide was concerned, but Eric Sonsegard said that he left 3K just uh, sitting in his suitcase. He didn't leave it sitting on the table or anything, but it was in his suitcase, and he had an iPad in his room out charging. That he did not put a Do Not Disturb sign on the door, left the room a while, the maid came in, He came back after the maid was gone, and no more iPad, no more $3,000. He is sure it got stolen by the maid or some other employee that entered the room. I asked him uh, through Twitter when this happened if they looked who entered the room, because these uh, electronic key systems keep track of that, and he said they're still looking into it. But... um, First of all, and he admits this himself, Eric admits he was stupid. Eric was warning all the poker players, he says, please retweet how stupid I am so everybody knows to put their stuff in the safe. And these were his words, not mine. Uh, So Eric definitely made a mistake there. I'm not going to say he's stupid, but uh, he made a mistake. He should have uh, put it in the safe. And uh, at least he was using his misfortune to try to get the word out to others to protect their valuables in the safe. 
But uh, now, is is the safe safe? Is the question? How much can you trust the safe in the Rio? Well, I wouldn't trust it all that much, but it, I'd trust it a hell of a lot more than I would putting uh, stuff in my luggage or leaving it out on the table. Uh, the safe to get into it requires uh, someone with knowledge on how to get into these things, and the bigger thing is they have to get into the room somehow. So, um, in order to break into your safe, the maids, none of the maids know how to get into the safe. The maid would have to bring either security or some uh, some tech who knows how to work the safe in with them. They'd have to be in cahoots to get into the safe. Because of the, let's say like a tech entered and broke into your safe. Well, there would be a record of that, that he used his key to get into your room. And if you claim your safe was, was uh, burglarized, and then they check the key records and see that their tech entered the room, then they would know who did it. It would be very strong evidence, and they'd probably give you uh, some kind of compensation. At the very least, the guy get arrested. So that's why the guy would not do it, because he would know there'd be a trail leading directly to him. Uh, but when the maid is coming in the room and just sees stuff laying out or sees, uh, you know, sees your luggage and can just open it up quickly and look if there's anything in there worth grabbing, she can do all that, and if they look, if she see that she entered the room, she'll say, yeah, I did enter the room to clean it. Like my, I'm supposed to. That's my job. And without a camera in the room, they can't prove whether she took it or whether this guy made it up or whether this guy's friend stole from him or whether he never had as much as he thought he did with him. A lot of ways this could have happened. I believe him. I believe he got stolen from him. I believe the maid stole from him. But uh, you just can't leave anything out for the maid to take. Now, I had a disturbing thing happen at the Rio. Didn't involve theft, but uh, it could have. I don't like the maid coming in my room for exactly that reason. I don't like them being able to rifle through my stuff and decide what they're going to steal. So I always leave a do not disturb sign on the door. And I don't ever want anyone coming in my room when I'm not there. For obvious reasons. Well, I got a note the last time I stayed at the Rio in my door. And it says, we noticed a do not disturb sign at your door. We're trying to provide you with excellent service, blah, blah, blah. I almost didn't read the whole thing. I almost just thought it was saying, hey, we noticed that you've had the Do Not Disturb up for a few days. If you want service, call us. But that's not what it said. It said, in order to provide you with excellent service, a team member may enter your room tomorrow to service it. And I said, what? So I put up Do Not Disturb. I leave it up there. They know I'm still in the room. And yet, after a few days, they're going to bust through it and enter anyway. And this is apparently their policy. So I called up and said, no, 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 you're not coming in my room. And they said, well, we'll leave a note for them, but they may or may not do it. It's our policy that they do it, so they might still enter. And I said, no, that's not acceptable. You need to get it across to them. Absolutely do not enter my room unless I call and say, come up here. And so the guys argue with me. He say, no, 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 you know, we have to check that everything's okay. And I'm like, okay, fine. I understand. If you want to check there's no dead bodies in my room, you want to check that I don't have, uh, you know, 10 different hookers tied up here. Fine. Come up right now. Send security. They can check every inch of my room right now. And once they're okay with it, once they see that everything's fine, then don't enter the room again. So the the guy looked into it and finally called me back and said he got the message to everybody involved in the housekeeping department not to enter my room, and they didn't. But why do you have to go through all that hassle? Why can't you just put up a do not disturb sign? Why can't do not disturb mean do not disturb? You know when they tell guys no means no? 
When a girl tells you no, that means stop touching her, stop trying to have sex with her, no means no. It should mean no also with your do not disturb sign. No should always mean no with that. When you say, no, I do not want the maid coming in my room, it should mean, no, I do not want the maid coming in my room at all as long as the sign sits up there. But to the Rio, it does not mean that. So if you're staying at the Rio and you get one of those weird things in your door or even beforehand, if you don't want the maid coming in your room, don't just put up do not disturb. Call to the front desk and tell them, under no circumstances do I want anyone coming in this room unless I call for it. And make sure that they agree to this and get the name of the person who promises you that. Otherwise, you could end up like Eric Sonstegard. By the way, I'm sure he'll never get back the 3K or the iPad because you can't prove it. And it's true, you know, what if you just lose the money in the casino? What if you just want a free iPad? You know, anyone can claim they got stuff stolen and blame the maid. So I don't even blame the Rio for not replacing it. You just have to be careful with your own stuff. All right, second to last topic here. Uh, if anybody wants to call, 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355, or 702-430-1808. JSTAT saying in the room, the Rio also leaves a message on the phone when leaving the Do Not Disturb sign. They do that. It is true, I always get this like long kind of grainy sounding message. It sounds like they recorded it like 30 years ago. It's like, <laughs> We noticed a do not disturb sign near your door. Uh, we want to provide you with excellent service. If you need service, please call housekeeping. It sounds like one of those, like, your call can't be completed as dialed recordings that they made in the 70s. But uh, that's fine. But in addition, they put that stupid thing in your door after a few days pass that they're going to enter anyway. So that's what I was talking about. When I read it, I didn't even... I, I thought I was reading it wrong, but I called up and they said, no, no, that's what we're going to do. We're going to come in tomorrow. <laughs> so, anyway, uh, second to last topic here. WSOP champ Greg Merson is very unhappy about the games at the Aria. He feels he's being shut out. And... Uh, let me read some of his tweets here about this. He's very unhappy about the situation. I don't blame him. And I, I can't seem to find the thread about it. Thought I had a thread about it. I can't find it. Guess I didn't make a thread about it. Okay, I thought I made a thread about it on my site. Well, let me talk about it from memory then. Let me see if I can find his Twitter. Once again, producing the show... As the show goes on, a trademark of Poker Fraud Alert Radio. Uh, here we go. I found his tweets. Just going to his Twitter the old-fashioned way. This is what he wrote two days ago, June 30th. The politics in live poker are such a joke. The fact that private games are running casinos is so fucking scum by everyone involved. Dan Smith made a good point to me and how... MTTs, you know, multi-table tournaments, are so much more fair in that regard. He's saying that, uh, you know, anyone can enter any tournament at any time, and they can't shut you out. Uh, Grinding cash at Aria. Wish the room had more tables, but I enjoy the atmosphere more than the Bellagio. Man, honestly, something needs to be done about these private games and casinos where the wait list isn't open to the public. Fuck politics, he puts hashtag. If people show up 
If people want to show up and start private, that's fine, but the list needs to be open to the public. There's no way that rule is written otherwise. So it seems like what he's saying here is that he shows up to the ARIA, there's some game going on, they won't show him or anyone else the waiting list, and uh, they pretty much say, hey, it's a private game, you're shut out of it, you can't get in. So even if someone leaves, uh, you can't get in. Or maybe they're saying, if someone leaves, we're not telling you who's next. Either way, it's screwed up. And this is the World Series champ. This is the reigning World Series champ from 2012. This isn't some nobody, some tourist in town who's complaining he's being shut out by the poker cool kids, which, which by the way, shouldn't happen either. It really should be open to everyone. Uh, poker is a game. It's supposed to be a game that anyone can play at any time. If you have the money, you should be able to play. I know they have a few invitational tournaments where you have to have qualified in some way, but aside from that, everything, especially cash games, have always been... If you have the money, you can sit. Now, not everybody has to play with you. If you're such a fearsome player, people are afraid to play, they can all sit out and say, hey, you know, we're afraid of you. But they can't say, you can't come in the game. Tough luck. Now, I don't know if they were doing this to Merson personally or if this is just private. I think it's the latter. I think that they just were not letting anyone in. I think they have a group that uh, likes to play with one another probably with a few fish, and they want to shut any pros out from the outside that may want to join. So let's say it's uh, nine people, and seven are pros, two are fish. They've all kind of gotten to be friendly with one another. Uh, I think what they want here is that if um, one of them gets tired and leaves, that they can't just bring an outsider in like uh, Greg Merson to clean up. That the fish's money will all go to one or more of these seven people and no one else. So, um, he's trying to say here, look, I don't mind if people want to show up and start their own game. If, if nine people want to start up, sh- you know, show up and say, hey, let's start up this game together. And then they're the first nine on the list to play. Fine. But if someone wants to get on the list 10th to o- occupy the next open seat, they should be able to. And I agree with him. Now, unfortunately, this is legal. Because uh, a few years ago, they changed this. There used to be no private gaming areas allowed in Las Vegas casinos. But they changed this a few years ago at the request of very, very, very high rollers who were you know, wagering like 500k a hand. We're not talking about poker here. We're talking about uh, like Baccarat and Blackjack. And they didn't want looky-loos staring over their shoulder. Saying, hey, it's a public area. I can go where I want. So... They introduced private gaming areas for very high-limit players, but unfortunately this makes private areas for poker legal and private games legal. It shouldn't be legal. Poker should be open to anyone who has the buy-in that is willing to sit down aside from these few invitational tournaments. So, I agree with Merson. I've seen some games going before to where... uh, it seems like they're informally shutting people out. This is even before that law changed, and I always felt like uh, I always felt like that, uh, like an outsider, like that uh, whoever's in good with the floormen there get to be in that game, and everybody else doesn't. So if you're not a regular there, you don't get to get in. So I understand how he feels. I even had it happen one time where I was on the list for 100-200 at Bellagio. And it was a 10-handed game instead of a 9-handed game. It's always a 10-handed game. Or, sorry, it's always a 9-handed game, not a 10-handed. 
but it was a tin-headed game at the moment. Well, someone busted, and I said, okay, time to take my seat. Now, I don't love ten-handed. I'd much rather have nine-handed. I'd much rather have six-handed or four-handed, but whatever. I wanted my seat, and they said, no, no, no. We're changing this back to nine-handed right now. And I said, what do you mean you're changing it back to nine-handed? They said, we're changing it back to nine. We don't want ten anymore. I said, well, you wanted ten a minute ago. They said, well, we don't want it anymore. So then I I figured out what was going on. The guy who busted was the biggest fish in the game. They made it ten-handed at the time because when he showed up, they wanted him in the game. But there were already nine people. None of them wanted to leave at the moment because it was a good game. But they wanted him there too. Since he was first up, instead of making him wait, they added a tenth seat to the table. But once he was out, once he was done and, and leaving... They didn't want another pro at the table, so they told me, no, we're going back to nine, because we don't want you. We want to have the fish, and now that the fish is gone, we're going back to nine the way we like it in the first place. I said, "Uh -uh uh-uh-uh, you can't have it both ways. If you want ten, this game has to stay ten until everyone agrees it's not ten, including the one who's coming in. And I don't agree. I've waited my time here. I'm taking this seat. And um, they finally called the floor man over, and the floor man said, look, if he wants to take the seat, he can and finally, someone piped up at the table and said, you know what, I agree with him. I agree, you can't pick and choose which players you get. You can't pick and choose, we're going to be ten-handed for this guy, but only nine-handed for this guy. So some people grumbled, but I said, tough luck. But that, you know, it's not the same thing that Merson's talking about, but it, you know, it's similar. And they, they were fortunately, we had a floor man there that made the right ruling. And the right ruling was that it can stay ten-handed until it's unanimously agreed to make it nine such as if there's no list and there's only nine people left and there's not a tenth one who wants to join, um, or all ten people agree. I guess that's the only way it can happen, to where uh, there's no list. Or or I guess if the you know, or if the next one up on the list says, uh, you know, I'll just wait and you can make a nine. That's the other way it can happen. All right, so uh, getting to the last topic... But it's a topic I know some people want to hear about. The World Series of Poker main event is starting. And I will be playing. I will be playing on the 7th, day 1B of the main event. It officially starts on July 6th, which is day 1A. And then there's also July 8th, which is day 1C. There's only three starting days this year, down from four last year in the last few years. Not because they're expecting a lower turnout, but because they've actually made more room for it. So there's going to be more tables going at once. So why am I playing day 1B? What made me pick that day? Why don't I play the first day or the last day? Why am I playing the second of the three starting flights? Did I do this at random? No. I have been kind of studying this over the years because I've noticed that the World Series of Poker main event, which is a very deep stacked event, the levels are all two hours. You start out with 30k in chips. It really is a deep event. It's not the type of event where you're going to find yourself all in in the first few hours, barring some kind of epic cooler. The main event is all about patience and discipline. And of course running well too But it's a lot about patience and discipline But I'll tell you what else it's about It's about who you get at your table If you start out With a weak table 
which is very possible at the main event because there's a lot of weak and semi-weak players in the field. A lot of people wrongly think that for a $10,000 buy-in, you're only going to get expert players. It's not true at all. Plenty of fish in that field and plenty of mediocre players in that field. There's plenty of people to where if you're a competent no-limit player, you don't have to be a great no-limit player. If you're a competent no-limit tournament player, you will be far and away better than many people on your first table. So the seat you get and the table you get is very important for the first day. Because uh, at a an event with a worse structure, let's take the uh, 1500 buy-in events where you start with 4500 in chips and the blinds move up much quicker. You will find yourself in certain spots where it is impossible to fold when you have a decent hand. Once the tournament gets going a few hours in, unless you've uh, chipped way up and have a deep stack against another deep stack, uh, you know, you'll flop top pair and very often have to get it all in. You'll have kings and there's no way you can fold them pre-flop, barring uh, you know, some sort of super, super rock-tight player who, who you know, would never go all in otherwise. But you know, against most people, you've got to go in with those kings. And um, the main event is different. The main event, you can lay down kings. The main event, uh, you can lay down hands that are second nut. Of course, you have to look at the situation, look at the player, go with your reads, etc., etc., but there's a lot more real poker to be played at the main event because it's a deep-stacked event, and the levels move over very slowly. You know, the so-called deep stacks, like the, you know, the deep stack we were talking about where that guy called in uh, uh, Jesse Jett, you start out with a lot of chips, but the blinds move up so quickly it goes from a deep stack to a shallow stack pretty fast. So those deep stacks are kind of a misnomer. Well, the World Series of Poker main event is a true deep stack. And when you have a true deep stack, and when there is a lot of play, where there's a lot of post-flop decision to be made, and when there's even decision pre-flop to be made, uh, based upon how you're being raised and re-raised, it's very, very important to have the weakest competition that you can find. And unfortunately, at tournaments, you can't just pick where you sit. You can't pick your seat, you can't pick your table, so if you get a terrible seat or a terrible table or both, you're stuck, and then you just have to hope to run well. So the goal in the main event should be to pick a day that is going to give you the highest chance of being up against weak players. I've also said before, the absence of good players is more important than the presence of bad players. And that's very true at the main event. I would much rather have a table of me and eight mediocre players than me and uh, four good players and four bad players. I don't want to deal with the good players. I don't want to go up against the good players. I don't want to have to make crucial decisions against good players. I want to have these decisions against the bad players because it's a lot easier to play against them, a lot easier to preserve chips against them, a lot easier to get chips against them. That's who I want. Okay, that's what everybody wants. So what do you do to get at those tables, since you can't decide where you play? That's where picking a day comes in. Now, of course, this is an inexact science. Of course, it can backfire, where the day you pick, where you think it's better, you get a bad table, and your buddy who plays on the day that's uh, worse gets a good table. Of course, that can happen. It does happen. But this is what I've observed from my nine years, actually, it's my eight Eighth year. It was my ninth year. I played eight years at the World Series of Poker main event. 
Now I'm going to be talking as if there's always been three days. There have been four for the last few years, but uh, truthfully, day 1B and 1C were pretty much the same when there were four. So it was pretty much 1A or 1B slash 1C or 1D. Those were the choices. Because 1B and 1C, in my opinion, were just about identical. Now they're not identical because there's only three days, and the three of them are very different now, in my opinion. Day 1A, the first flight, is always the least popular. You get a lot of pros who just want to get it over with and leave if they fail. That's the mentality they come in with. They don't want to sit around and wait and watch other people play and then start and then have waited all this time just to run poorly and be out after a few hours. They don't want to wait three days to play when they can play today. So you get a lot of pros on the first day who just want to get it over with. If they do well, great. If they don't do well, okay, now they can leave Vegas or now they can go do other things. So day 1A is also the least popular for whatever reason with the masses. It always gets the smallest field of the starting flight to the main event. But I've always felt that they get a higher percentage of pros in that because of the people who want to play and get it over with. Now this year, it may be a little bit different because 1A takes place on a Saturday. And that might appeal to fish who only want to miss work if they're going to make it to day two. So you may have guys coming in and go, look, I don't want to take vacation days from work or even if they have their own business. I don't want to miss work days. I don't want to miss uh, days in the office or days at my business uh, unless I'm going to be making it to at least day two. I'd rather play and bust on Saturday if that's what's going to happen and then I can get back home on Monday for the, uh, for the week again. So that may bring some casual players, some fish to the game on day 1A. Uh, so I think it's a decent choice this year. Most years I would say don't take day 1A. But this year, because it's on Saturday, I think it's a decent choice. Now day 1B is also not that popular typically, more so than 1A. It gets more players than 1A, but still not all that popular. Uh, I always choose 1B or 1C when it existed, You know when those were the two middle days. I always pick the middle days because I think it has the highest percentage of non-pros. Remember, I'm saying that uh, non-pros, not necessarily terrible players, but people who are not pro players, people who are ranging between bad and mediocre, players that I am far and away superior to at the table. So uh, I believe this to be the case, because it's not first, so you get all the impatient pros out of the way, and it's not last. And for whatever reason, most of the pros love the last day. The ones that don't do the impatient first day thing seem to all love the last day. I can tell you from experience, especially over the last few years, that there's been a lot of donks and semi-donks at my day one starting tables on 1B, 1C. You know, when those were the middle days. So either I'm running really well with table draws, or, or I'm onto something here that those are the best days to register. Because you'd be surprised the type of play I would see at the table, between uh, straightforward and, and too passive, and just you know all the type of play you like to see at a tournament, and yet it's occurring at the 10K main event. Now, all this is going to fall off after some time when these players bust, you're not going to see this on day three and day four, but uh, you want to have it on day one at least. Give yourself the best chance to get out to a good start. Now, day one C, the last day, is the most popular. In fact, it usually sells out. In past years, day one D, which was then the last day, got more people than one A and one B combined. But nearly every pro I seem to talk to tells me they always like to play the last day. I ask them why, and they don't know. They just say, I just like it. I just enjoy it. That's my favorite day. Some of them say, oh, there's more fish that day. I say, why? Uh, well, there's more people. Well, that, that doesn't mean anything. 
there's more pros too. <laughs> you know, that doesn't mean there's more a higher percentage of fish. So none of them can really give me a good logical explanation for why they like the last day, but they all love it. There are so many pros who love the last day. And I have found that a disproportionate number of pros like the last day. So I stay away from it. I also think it has a disadvantage for later in the tournament because it has the least amount of rest in between days by definition because it's starting later. So you'll actually have less rest between days overall if you start on 1C than if you start on uh, 1A or 1B. Now, when I made it to day 6 in 2010, I started to feel that. I, I didn't start day 1A, but I started to feel on day 6, wow, you know, this is like a grind. This is like uh, every single day I'm getting up and by noon I'm there and I'm playing a long day of poker. And very stressful, of course, being the main event and getting deep there. You know, like, uh, I kind of felt like I needed to break again. Well, I got a break because I busted on day six. But uh, had I not busted, I, I would have felt kind of worn out, to tell you the truth. Like, I, I could have still played well, but I'm just saying that I wouldn't have minded a day break at that point. So you really want to get as much break as possible, and you get the most break as possible playing uh, 1A and second most 1B. 1C, you have the, the least break. And uh, uh, the other problem this year with 1C is that it's on a Monday. So, for the same reason, I think some will want to play on Saturday, some of these fish. I think a lot won't want to play Monday. So, stay away from 1C. And if you meant to play 1C, and then decide, or you were going to play 1C and decided not to because of this radio show, end up playing 1B and get at my table, please go easy on me, because I'm the one who got you there. <laughs> now, I'll go as far to say that your table makeup is absolutely huge, as I said before, because saving bets or extracting extra bets against lousy players is as crucial to success or more crucial than just getting good cards. I cannot stress how important it is to get a weak table at the main event. I can't. Now, yes, if you get a a weak table and you get all these coolers and take all these beats, of course you're going to go out. Of course it's better to get great cards at a terrible table than bad cards at a good table. I'm not saying it's everything, but it's a lot. So you should try your best to make that happen. And that's by picking a good day. I think 1A and 1B are about the same this year, but I would still go with 1B. Some people have asked, should I stay at the Rio? The answer is yes. More convenient, no hassle with driving and parking. You have an easy place to go to when you want to get away from everyone during the breaks, especially during the dinner breaks. You have a room to go to. It's much nicer. Is it a wonderful hotel? No. Is it a complete dump? No. It's kind of in the middle. The rooms are big. Um, there are various maintenance problems there that'll be annoying, but you can get them fixed if they happen to occur. You'll notice some here and there, but it's, it's not an awful place to be. I wouldn't stay there if it was a dump. It's not great, it's not terrible, but it's it's passable. But the, you can't beat the convenience. And if you do stay there, I said this last week, stay in the Ipanema Tower. It's much quieter, much, much quieter. You have a lot of noise in the other tower, called the Masquerade Tower. And... Even though they claim the rooms are superior in Masquerade, they really aren't. They're like a little bit better, but they're not much better. So you might as well stay in the quieter place. And Ipanema is a lot closer to the World Series than Masquerade is. Neither is all that close, 
But because you're already walking a distance, that extra distance from where Ipanema is to Masquerade starts to really add up. So, hmm. Well, I don't know what the problem is here. We're having uh, technical issues. By the time you listen in the archives, uh, it'll be better. This is not a sound card issue. This is a an internet issue. I'm having uh, internet outages here, so uh, I will fix this in the archives to some degree. But I apologize for. Uh, the whole thing uh, crashing like this twice, but at least the whole show went on before this happened. That's uh, almost a record. <laughs> Someone's saying uh, Druff is tethering off of his iPhone because he didn't want to pay for multiple devices. <laughs> I'm actually not in a hotel right at this moment. But where I am did have a, a big internet hiccup. So anyway, um, just just to let you guys know, what I was trying to say before, before all these uh, cutouts. On the first day of the main event, don't try to be too tricky. Don't try to bluff too much. I'm not saying don't bluff, but I'm saying don't do not do anything that's going to give away a lot of chips stupidly. You don't have to do that. You, you can pick very good spots to get chips, very good spots to save chips, and watch your players. That's all I can say. Watch your players. You'll figure out the ones that are probably not going to bluff you. You'll figure out the ones that you can probably steal from. You're going to figure out the ones that you can't steal from that are going to snap you off. Watch your players. Don't just zone out when you're not in hands. Watch your players. You don't have to watch them intently every moment. Just you know, for the first hour or two, watch them pretty closely, and you'll get an idea very quickly who the bad ones are, who the okay ones are, and who the good ones are, and you will figure it out. So if you're a main event player, that's my suggestion to you. I will be playing on July 7th. Nobody has a piece of me. I'm all by myself on this one. I succeed or fail with my own money. I do want to thank all the people who bought pieces of me in the preliminary events. Uh, Most of you made money. Some of you made big money. Thanks to event number 37 where I finished 5th. And, uh, you know, I'm hoping to get a third cash out of this. I'm hoping I have uh, one more cash left in me this year, and I hope it's a good cash. I'm not going to be so arrogant to say that I expect to win it or that I'm shooting to win it. I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to win it, but I'm, I'm not coming in going, oh, I'm going to win this thing. Yeah, this is mine. No, I'm not thinking that because there's like going to be like 7,000 people. I have to run ridiculously well to win that damn thing. But, uh, you know, a good solid cash I'll be happy with, and, you know, I'm just going to play as far as it takes me. In 2010, I sat there with a below-average stack for like, days two through six and made it all the way to 88th. So I, I played my short stack very well then. I was very proud of my play three years ago. Very proud of my play in 2011, even though I didn't cash. And uh, last year, I'll admit, I didn't play too well. Last year, I played well the first day, and then after that, I uh, played a little worse the second day and played lousy the third day. So uh, this year, I'm going to try not to let that happen. I actually had nightmares about the 2012 main event. I, I literally had nightmares. Ones where I was getting a chance to play it again, getting my chips back. Um, like, I didn't have nightmares of it happening again, but I had nightmares of, like, the tournament continuing and me getting a second chance, and I'd wake up and it wasn't true. And I had that for months. It really affected me how I, I misplayed day three. It may have cost myself a cash. So this year, I'm going to try to do my best with whatever cards I get. Try to not make any dumb decisions. Try to play my 2010-2011 uh, style. Not so much my 2012 style. And uh, next week, 
this show will be taking place one day early on July 9th. Sorry, not July. July 8th. July 9th is the schedule day. July 8th is the day it will take place. That's actually day 1C, which I won't be playing. So no matter how well I do or how poorly I do in day 1B, I definitely won't be playing the next day because that's day 1C. So... I'll probably have a lot to talk about, whether it's uh, frustration that I'm out already, or uh, happiness that I'm one of the chip leaders, or something in between. The last year I got off to a great start. The last year I was like, uh, what was I, 14th or something, out of everybody in day 1A that I didn't cash. That was kind of sad. But that proved, you know, you never know how the start refers to uh, how you end up doing. In 2010, I, I had an okay but not a great first day and uh, ended up finishing 88th. And had I won that race, I could have... Uh, who knows how far I could have gotten. So... You know what that sound is. That's the sound of me being done with the show and me being afraid the internet's going to crap out again. So I better be done as soon as I can before I embarrass myself and this site further. I'd like to thank what is his name? Jesse Jett, that's his name, for calling in and clearing his name. Thank you. And I apologize for bringing your name up in the first place, but you know what? I think it's a good thing, because now you got to clear yourself uh, and uh, now people on 2 plus 2 will know the truth and uh, now the truth's out there and the truth is out there that you were innocent, unless you really are a good actor. But I think you're innocent. Remember, six days from now is the next show, 7 p.m. here on PokerFraudAlert.com. We will have another free roll for some substantial money because a lot of money was donated for the free roll by people who won pieces of me in the preliminary events. If you missed any part of this show, it will be in the archives very soon. You can find it in Stitcher. You can find it in iTunes. You can find it right on PokerFraudAlert.com as an MP3. There's a lot of ways you can listen. You can listen on your smartphone. You can listen from your computer. So many ways you can hear this show. And um, remember, three weeks from now, July 23rd, there will be no show. But two weeks from now, there will be. Next week and the next two weeks, there will be shows. No show on the 23rd. I'd like to thank everybody who stuck by me through these technical problems at the end. Follow my Twitter, at Todd Wittellis, for frequent updates starting July 7th about the main event. You'll almost feel like you're there. And if you hate frequent updates, you'll probably hate my Twitter. So that is all for tonight, a rare solo show. Maybe we'll have China Maniac back next week. Unless he plays Day 1C, then we won't. But whatever, whoever. I'll talk to you guys later, and... Shalom. Shalom.